Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmarel. This is David Lichtenstein. This week we'll be speaking about life before divorce. How do we stop this trend, upward trend of divorce in our communities? And here are some of the Shilas we're going to be speaking about with our Rabbanim. We're going to have Rabbi Srol Knafla, Av Bezdin of the Badats of Lakewood. Does a wife have to take on her husband's Chumris? Should you be your spouse's Mashkiach? Is there a mitzvah of Kibbutz Aim when parents are meddling in their children's lives, which unfortunately causes a lot of Shalom bias issues? If a chassan or kala teacher taught incorrectly and it leads to divorce, can they be obligated to pay for damages? Why are there so many divorces these days? So we're going to hit Rabbi Knopfler is a Masada Gitten, so he sees this blood firsthand. I dealt yesterday with the case of a woman whose therapist had called two rabbanim in front of her and asked them if she could stop going to the mikvah. And both rabbanim said yes. They were by me for a divorce yesterday. And those Rabbani made a terrible mistake because you can never pass in such a thing without having spoken to the other side. Then we're going to have a very famous uh, therapist, Tali Rosenbaum from Eretz Yisrael. She's an individual and couple therapist, certified intimate therapist. She's author of I Am For My Beloved and Lila Daidi. And she's also going to be speaking, why are so many young people coming home quickly? Is it immaturity? Are they unwilling to put the work in? Are we preparing our children for marriage? When is it time for therapy? And when is it time to give up on therapy? How can we stop the tidal wave? I think this is a really superb interview that every parent who's marrying off a kid should be listening to. That the shidduch was made because my 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 parents really wanted his parents as machatanim. They that they wanted to be machatanim with their family. Then we're going to have Dr. Avi Mushel from Passaic is one issue is getting married in the first place is often happening in a way that is not well done, it's not correct. People are not necessarily marrying people that are matim for them, that are appropriate choices for them. And we're going to have Lisa Tversky, another therapist, author, international lecturer on dating and marriage. People are catching on to things, issues, uh, problems, sooner rather than later, and are trying to get help, and when there isn't help, or the help isn't, you know, if a spouse isn't willing to get help, or the help isn't helping, that people are not staying and trying to build families that they then have a hard time managing because of whatever strife is going on. Before we go to our program, I want to share a few voicemails. Now, we get a lot of voicemails and a lot of emails, but some of them are a little bit beyond the pale. Listen to this fellow. You're, you're starting to get from that riot from Shabbos. I didn't even say where it is. I can't look it up. But just from hearing it, does not sound like a riot at all. You know, it's not doing a mitzvah. You don't understand the level of riches you have and the level of your enemy you want to be getting. Scary. Think about what you do. And all the Mnitairah don't like you, only about the low people. Understand where you're going. Understand that your all tactics won't be good enough for you. You will be in a place close to Hitler for killing everybody else. You bring that Kaisrom. This is a fellow from Eretz Yisrael who uh, did not believe that suicide or the threat of suicide halachically has any bearing. And we pointed out that mental health and halacha, suicide for somebody with mental health is considered pikuach nefesh, a mishnah in Bamemad Likin and a gemar in Bamemad Likin, which this young, this young fellow was not aware of. Now, 
He didn't know the Mishnah. He admits to it, but his response is, is that we are going to go to Gehenim, which is a very interesting thing to argue. Maybe check where the Mishnah is. I mean, this is a, not a very... It's a Gemara in the first 20 blot of Shabbos. Unfortunately, maybe some people, they learn like four or five blot. That's the, the modern way in one Masechta. And Halacha is like something on a distant land. It's, uh, it's together with the Musas Farim. But before you suggest that people go to Gehenim, at least look up the Mishnah. Now, here's another fellow who didn't agree with Rabbi Ari Wasserman's last program. You must have thought you argue with you, disgusting piece of garbage or so. Who are you to decide what's in the box? The from you supposed to be in the box. You disgusting piece of garbage or how aren't you go down in the first second? Does any good in the life today but shut it down? Because you disgusting Moses, you liberal, go people who didn't all these guys, you know what I mean? You disgusting liberal. Wow, I couldn't believe your topics you had. Wow, fear after fear after fear. Wow, you retarded. I don't know how you get. You better think you're good. I don't know why you wear yarmulke and stuff. Piece of garbage. He's very angry and full of, you know, uh, invective. Now, I didn't listen to the program, but I checked and I saw he has Rabbi Yitzhak Berkowitz, who's certainly one of the biggest Paiskim in the world today. He has Rabbi Breidowitz, Rabbi Avi, five Rosh Hashivas, and, and Rabbi Wine. So I can't imagine that there was, you know, too much beyond the pale said there. But what is it? What do we see from some of these young callers? No understanding that there could be a different opinion and no respect for another opinion. Right? It's really, this is the woke generation of young Jews, the cancel culture. If I don't either understand you or agree with you, you're going to Gehenim and whatever other invective uh, the second caller called. Let me compare this to a story. My Rebbe, was, one of them was Reb Shleim Zalman, how he used to respect the people who disagreed with him. Here's a fabulous story, okay? It's brought in a Leu Leibel. Now, there was a machlekes, Reb Shleim Zalman and Reb David Baran, whether you could be mafrish, trumis, and maestris for other people without their consent. So Reb David Baran used to take trumis and maestris for all of Kval Yisrael, the people who are fry, the people who forget. He said, let them not be over in Esed Arais, and midin zchia. Reb Zalman was very upset at it, and he printed a whole kuntras called Lafrushe Meisura, to separate you from what's unpermitted, from Averis, right, against it. What happens? A bacha comes from Shlomo Zalman one time, and he says he wants to eat by his parents that don't, I'm not mafresh, true mesamayish, must have been a balchuva. What should he do? Shreb Shlomo Zalman said to him, you could of course be saimach and Reb David Baran and eat in your parents' house. In other words, he disagreed with him. He disagreed with him strongly, la And yet, when a boy came over to him, he saw that he has to be saimach on him. He says you should absolutely be saimach on him. So look at the respect that Reb Shlomo Zalman had against people who he disagreed with, right? But unfortunately, the, today's culture, among the woke cancel culture is when we don't agree, we we use uh, adjectives and curse words, etc. And the young generation should learn from our G'daylam how to treat people who we disagree with, especially when disagreeing with, like in the last program with Rabbanim, you know, Rosh Hashivas and Rabbanim. Now, an interesting thing happened to me I wanted to share with you this week. I went to a chasana. I go to three chasanas a year. My wife chooses them. She chose when I went to a chasana. And I'm sitting by the chuppah, and uh, the chasana comes down, and I didn't stand up. Everybody, so the guy next to me stands up. He says, like, why don't you stand up? I said, for starters, he's not a chasana yet. He becomes a chasana later. You know, it's not like a mole where they used to do the eris in a year before. So he's not a chasana. There's nothing to stand up for. There's no chasana to the left. He becomes a chasana. And I said, and besides that, do you know that 
you're just imitating the Christians. The guy looks at me. I said, you think in this, you could find me any place in Bavli, Rishalmi, Sefra, Sefrita, Sefta, Rishayinim, Achrayinim, flower girls marching down an aisle, people sitting on both sides, right? Standing up for a chassan and a kala, marching, marching didn't exist. The aisles didn't exist. The flower girls didn't exist. The little kids coming down before. This whole Purim spiel, it's taken straight out of a Christian church. So I don't know what the takeaway is, but like the, the sort of, there's a, a level of, of knowledge that's missing here that a lot of what is sort of has become Kaidish Kadashim and these Maisa Chuppah is, the, you know, if you look at a church wedding, go on YouTube, look at a church wedding, and this is what they look like. I'm not suggesting we change anything, but the outrage about standing up. So if you don't stand up by the next, uh, by the next wedding you go to, the next Chuppah you go to, you just say, you know what? I guess I'm not going to be imitating the Christians today. We have plenty to be proud of on our own, Svelton's Garnished. Let me share a vart with you and told us we have Avimelech. Who's Avimelech? He's sort of like a sleazy, licentious philanderer. He steals wives, among other things, among other fine acts. He shows up in the Torah and there's dozens of psukim. There's 35, 40 psukim about Avimelech. And it's worse than that. The second time he shows up is when he steals the Be'eris. His people steal the Be'eris from Avram. And we lay it on Yom Kippah. And everybody sits standing there with a serious look on their face. And they're, you know, they're reading about Avimelech. Upichel Sartzevoy. You know, has errands to cook. Like, what do we care about Avimelech? Svelta's bad characters through history. He should end up in the dustbin someplace. Like, Parai, you have the Makis. You have Zechelitz, yes, Betrayim. It's, it's essential to, to the story of Klal Yisrael. Vos geht mechon mit Avimelech. Who cares about Avimelech? That we have so much time and space in the precious Torah devoted. Them. And Pichel. So I want to share a vart. It's a, it's a emiss of art. The Gemara clears, I think it's in Baba Kama, the Gemara clears whether Oimer Mutta is Chayev Apata. What is an Oimer Mutta? There's a concept in American law too. Let's say a guy lives in the forest. He comes out and he kills somebody. So they catch him. He says, I didn't know killing is not allowed. I grew up in a forest. Nobody ever told me. There was no, I didn't have, went to school. And so the answer is no. It's a cat. Ignoratia juris non excusat. Ignorance of the law is not an excuse. For many reasons. I remember when I was a Bachaner at Yisrael. So a few Bachrim, they rented a car in the summer. This is going back a long time ago, 40 years or so. And they, they weren't, they went through a red light. So a lady, Dry, a lady policeman pulls them over. He says, you went through a red light. So the guy driving was a chevraman. He looks at her. He says, so? She says, what do you mean? It's, you can't drive. He says, oh, in America, he tells her, we drive on red and we stop on green. Somehow they got off. But la halacha, we hold Oymir Mutta is, is chayiv. And in American law, ignorance of the law is no excuse. What's the Gemara's Raya from Avi Melech? He said, Achaisi, Achaisi, he, and yet Rabbi Nishalem wanted to kill him. He wanted to kill him. Rashi explains why Tak is an Aymer Mutachayev. What do you mean? A man shows up over here, a hundred year old man with a beautiful woman. You should ask them, where is, do you need food? Do you need a hotel? You don't ask them, excuse me, who is this woman? Right? In, in a lawless society, when you're asking that question, you're basically telling the guy, we're going to kill you for her. So he said, Achaisi, don't play stupid, Avimelech. And Avimelech plays stupid to the vest. He says, "Betam levavi, self-righteous." Ubni kayin kapia sees his eyes. You know, he plays again and again. He tells, "Masisalanu machatis machatasi lachmamish." Like these, you're wrong, even. And Avram says, "Ain yerasalikim amakam." That's why. So don't play stupid. He tells him. And if you think it's a one-time event, the next time Avimelech shows up is when he steal. They steal the beiris. And what does he tell Avram? It was mychiach Avram es Avimelech. What does Avimelech says? Lo yodati lo. Shamati, like he got it. Let's face it. See no evil, hear no evil, do no evil.
Who does Abimelech represent? Many people. You know who he represents? The American government during World War II. What did they say? Secretary of State? We had no idea the Holocaust was occurring. Of course we would have come to the defense of the great Jewish people had we known. Well, you didn't know. There were stories being sent constantly. Hundred and how many rabbis? 150 rabbis marched on Washington to tell FDR and he wouldn't even show them in. The self-righteous nationals, as I didn't know any. And what comes, by the way, right after this? Comes the Akedah. And we lane them together because the precedent to the killing of Jews is When good people make believe that they what happens, the next thing follows is tragedy. That's on a national level. On a personal level, I have a neighbor, Nebuch, who's, who's very sick. So I saw one of his neighbors in Shul, and I said, did you ever go in? She says, I didn't know. I said, really? I guess you thought the ambulances that come, maybe they were just bored, they were visiting. His wife makes a good kakash cake. Was, what is this? That's Avimelech. And Avram has two enemies here. One is enemy of Saddam. Very understandable. Saddam is a one-time event, a nation that's anti-chesed. They proudly said, we are anti-chesed, we kill you if you do chesed. Why does Avram come? Because why does Saddam come? Avram is the first time, concept of chesed, giving away from yourself freely to others. It's a pillar. Imagine you give it your hard-earned work, I just give it to you for free. It's, he was the one who created the concept of charity. So, at a time when there's Nisgala, this Amut HaChesed of the Bria, there has to be the anti-chesed of the Zelumazah and Saddam. His other enemy... Is Avimelech, again and again, what's Avimelech? There's something more dangerous than the guy who says he's anti-chesed. You know why? Because very few people are going to come out and say they're anti-chesed. Nobody's going to say that. Hashem, you know who's more dangerous? The guy who closes his eyes. Like, he got it, see? I didn't know that my neighbor was sick. I didn't know that the family down the block, that they don't have window shades. I thought maybe the nudists, that they can't afford them, that none of the kids could afford bicycles. They walk around in shmatis. I thought maybe they like the new look with the tawnies. And I have to say, I've been guilty of this in my life. With what people, I just didn't have the bandwidth. I made believe I didn't see a good And I, I played the part of Avimelech. Or when there's a fight among different constituencies, one is beating up the other, and they say, how could the leadership, how do they allow it? We don't know, we don't see. It. That's Avimelech. This is the parsha we play in Yom Kippur. So look at Avimelech, and look at Yosef. What does it say about Yosef? Yosef is in jail. He's abducted. He was kidnapped. He was sold. And now he's in prison. He was framed. But yet, when he sees somebody who isn't doing well, he doesn't wait for somebody to come over to him. He sees the Sri Pare, and what does he say? Madua Penechem Royem Hayoim. Amidst all of his troubles, he was so sensitive to others. I see something on your countenance changed. You don't seem as cheery as you did the other day. What's that? That's a Talmud of Avram Avinu. He got curious. He asked. He didn't wait for, you know, he didn't make excuses, look the other way, or wait till it was imposed on him. That's the beauty of Klal Yisrael. This is where we go beyond everybody else. Chesed requires curiosity. The argument of le'yadati, le'shamati, doesn't go over. Right, this is the message of Avram Avinu. Oilam chesed yibana, and don't play stupid. Be curious. When you see it, ask the question, why do you have a hole in your pants? Why isn't your kid in school? Both on a national and a personal level. So the next time you're in Shul and they're laying on Yom Kippur, and his name is Pichel. What does Pichel mean? Pichel. His mouth is everything. Listen to the words. And he turns on Avram, and he turns on Pichel. The person who has all the excuses, that's the enemy. When they say it next time, the Kabbalah, let's chas v'shalom, none of us ever be Avimelech.
Let's go to our riddle of the week. Into the program, you'll hear the answers to uh, the riddles I asked actually two weeks ago, um, and uh, we'll play those that we thought were the best answers. So if you leave your name, not only if you get it right, you'll hear your answer, but everybody will know that you got it right. So I suggest maybe perhaps put your names when you leave voicemails with your answers. Here's a riddle. It says, Now the Psikta says that Avram was a, a coin gadol. Born in Chazal in one or two places. So here are the two questions. One is, wait, the beginning of the parsha, Avram, Likbar Lusara, a coin gadol lost to be metame, even l'ishtai, right? How could he be metama? The second riddle is, it says, pilagshim Avram, nasan Avram So Rashi says, shame tuma masar lahem. He gave them some type of, I don't know, shame tuma, I don't know exactly what that is. Uh, and Rashi, it's Rashi in Sanhedrin, and Sadiq Alaham in Beis, and Rashi says, Kishif umaisa shedim. The question is that the Gemara in Sanhedrin and Vavam in Beis, Kamreb Shemen, Gam b'nei noyach mitzuvim ala kishif. Magic is, you know, shedim, magic, it's Kal uh, Yisrael's mitzuvah magic, and b'nei noyach mitzuvah on shedim. So how could, according to the Gemara in Sanhedrin, that b'nei noyach mitzuvah al kishif, how could... Uh, Rashi by us say shame tumah muslim which Rashi and Sanhedrin adds on is kishif umaisa shedim. That's one riddle. Perkid Rebelez and Periklamis says here's the quote: Lacha misa sara chazra avram belokach es grushasai. In other words, his grusha was uh, ketura. So the question is, if he's a kain gadol, he's also even a regular kain is also the grusha. So how could he be oisik in the kfura a and b? How could he take back his grusha? Those are our. That's our uh, riddle of the week. If you have the right answers, we will play them next week uh, at the end of the program. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, that's the country code, 33-011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's uh, 02-372-0304. Let's go to our guests. Joining us from Lakewood is Rabbi Yisrael Knopfler. He's the Av Bezdin of the Bezdin Tzedek of Lakewood. He's a Talmud of Panevish, of Brisk, of South Fallsburg, a Talmud of Rebbe Labach Bervach and before that, Pavlo Menachayim Menachayim, Berenu Harav Shach. Welcome, Rabbi Yisrael. Welcome, welcome. So your Bezdin is Isaac Alat in Hilchas Gittin. Yes. So let me ask you some some Shilas, and from there you'll take it where you want to. But my first Shilas is the Ramon Chayshim Mishpah in Eben Ezra brings Eilucha Kshera Benoshim Ela Isha Shaiser Etzayim Baila. He brings it from Daigai Smaimini, from a ton of Daigai So when husbands and wives come to you and they're arguing, and you know the girl's an Erlucha girl, and she went to Beis Yaakov, and a fine year, she wants to turn to her and say, on Childrick's Rebetzin, Eilucha Isha Kshera Eloiser Etzayim Baila. Like, what's the argument about? 
Look, the first thing I'm going to say on that is something that's said to the woman. It's not something that the husband should or even may demand from his wife. A woman has to know for herself that her job is to be and a woman is defined in the Torah. The first woman, Chava, is defined as Ezer Kinegdoi. Although Chazal do teach that up as being Ezer Zocha Ezer Loi Zocha Kinegdoi, there is a chat brought down by the Poiskim, which I believe is, 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 has a tremendous emphasis to it, that a woman's job is to be Ezer Kinegdoi. She's supposed to help her husband help her husband grow and help her husband live his life by at times being connected. Because the only person and the only thing that can put a husband straight is his wife. So, but, but Rabbi Stroll, you're not answering my question. You as the dying should turn around to the Isha and say, look, I'm not representing the husband. I'm independent. But what happened to Eilucha Isha Kshere, Elisha Isha Look, there are times when the husband's expectations from his wife are completely out of line. But let's say they're not out of line. You know, he, he, you know, he says, look, you know, I, want it. I like to do things this way. Okay, I like to do things this way. Okay, I like to do things this way. <laughs> I want 10 for 10. I want to do things my way. And none of them are particularly unreasonable. By the way, by the way, the Makna, just as a Yadiya in Kedushin says, that we want all the seminary teachers <laughs> to grab a pen in their hand. He says, Eilach Ishak Shera is not a Chiyuv. It's, an, it's just a, it's a, it's advice, but it's not a Chiyuv. Not, not like the Ramo. He says, Lala. he says, it's just, it's a good, it's Eitzit Hoiva. The, uh, and by the way, I saw that somebody went into uh, to the Rabchaim Kinevsky, Zachayim Lavrach, and he told them, doesn't my wife? So Reb Chaim said to him, and but what about the other Maima Chazal that a Baal is Mechabda Yaisa Migufei? What happened to the to the to the Maima Chazal that which Mechabda Yaisa Migufei would mean, and that he would listen to her because Mechabda Yaisa Migufei? So you know. There seem to be two sort of conflicting attitudes here in the in the, in the, in, in Chazal, and I'm just curious how, as somebody whose expertise is, is is you know one of them is is getting. How do you give us some advice? Which one rules? A husband who is mechabit his wife, yoytzer migufoy, can expect from his wife to be oyster returned by. However, um, a husband who is not mechabit his wife the way he should do cannot expect in return his wife to be Oysa Ritzel They usually mirror each other. Now, when a couple does come and sit down and this one says, the husband says she's not doing things my way and the wife says, uh, well, I don't want to do things your way, there's always an underlying reason. The teva of a woman is to want to do what her husband wants her to do. And if she's not doing it, there's something wrong in the relationship. And it's the job of whoever's working with them and dealing with them to figure out what's wrong and fix that. Because the natural tendency of a woman is to try to be moitzachem in her husband's eyes and to try to do and please her husband. Okay, so here's a Shiloh. You have a a husband and a wife. The husband has chumris. And the wife says, look, you know, 
I'm, I'm not interested in that chumra. The husband is even you know, and they could be halacha, they could be minig, like uh, which this is a, a bad example. The husband is makbar on chadash, a yashan rather. He's makbar, you know, to be careful about chadash. And the woman says, look, I never did it in my life. We we grew up in a house, but see them, they were particularly not makbar on it. Does a husband have a wife? A husband have a right to do twofold to enforce it in the house and to ask of his wife to eat. Uh, Yashin only. And this is an example of that. I'm sure you could give me an example of 50 Chumras. I chose one. What would you say? I, I chose this one because you could say the same thing about Chol of Sfam, but the argument is Sav of a couple. But something like, like Yashin is not yet Sav of a couple. Not that I know of anyway, so I chose that one. Um, look, you mentioned three things in your question. You mentioned Halacha, you mentioned Minik, and you mentioned Chumra. Each one stands on its own. Halacha. So halacha is, uh, is a no-brainer. Obvious, right? Is a no is a no-brainer. However, right. the example that you gave of chadas is is a uh, shaila. Has a it has a little bit of both. Because right, because halacha issue. So I, I would put that one aside. Um, well, let's let me give you another. Let's see, let's talk about something that is sneeze, right? The husband says, "I want you to wear four inches below your knee." And the wife says, you know, I, I went through all, you know, Bavli or Shalmi, Sithras, the Frita, Seft, and Shulchan Aruch. I couldn't find such a thing in halacha. And I don't want to do it. That's not a halacha ready, right? What do you, as a, as a, and I could give you 20 other examples. Let's get, what, what do you say as the Rav? Um, four inches below the knee is a, something that's taken, not mentioned anywhere in halacha. It's something that was Badu Chachom Milibo to those who are learning the Dorim at the moment. Um... Really, the husband has a right to be matched how his wife dresses. Why is that? Because the way his wife dresses affects the household. It affects the kids. Um, the foreign bring down that uh, a woman who dresses betzniyus will have good kids, and the husband's entitled to make that request from his wife. So let me, Rabbi Yisrael, Ramesha was asked to Tshuva very famously. Uh, a couple got married. The husband was anti-shetel. He wanted his wife to cover her hair, with, uh, which is certainly a big day in the Paiskim, right? That's here. And Ramesha said in the Tshuva, he says, what's it, your geshaft, how she dresses? He says, it's, she's doing what halachically is correct. She has who to be saimachan. It's really not. Don't be machber her cheshbin. It's, where is this? Uh, it's in, in Ebenezer Chelik Beis, the same Beis. Shuvan Beis, yeah. Yud Beis. Right. So how would that be different then? And, and it's clearly halacha. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a real days in the, in the Paiskim, you know, a Beersheva, really going back all the way back that a Shetel is, is also. There are many in Eretz Yisrael who don't know well. You've been in America, I imagine. So he's saying, I'm, this is a halacha. Ramesh says, it's not your business. I would, I would argue that that's brought in the Paiskim, whereas four inches below the knee is not brought in the Paiskim. So Ramesh held it over there, Kalvachim over here. Wouldn't you agree with that? The, the, it's a famous Chuban base. Base, yes, but there is another Chubinikus Moshe where Moshe expresses what uh, generally accepted by the Poiskim that as far as Minik goes, Minik in, 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 in Gemara, in Mishnah, in Gemara, is dependent on the kindness. You know, you're talking about the Chuva and Chelek Aleph Simon Tess. Correct. But Correct. he doesn't. But he doesn't retract what he writes here. That's about something that's actually a minig. There is no minig on four. Tots establish it as a minig on four inches below. That's why I, I chose that case. Right. It, uh, I, th- that's true. But Reboisha does, if I recall correctly, I don't have the Reboisha here. But if I recall correctly, Reboisha makes a point of 
stating that what she wanted to do over there was Kedas Royf HaPoskim. Right. And Moshe took the position that what her husband wanted from her was a Chumri Yaseira. Right. I would take the position, I would take this is the position of none of the Paiskim. What's the position of none of the Paiskim? There's no Paisik who brings a concept of four inches below the knees. It's like a, some type of a, a, a late Chumrah. So one that says it's a late Chumrah, it's not brought by any Paiskim. And and I, I, it's 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 you know it's my it's 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 in my realm. I don't want to do it. And you could and and, and, and the least specifically, yes, you you would probably be right on that. Um, the reason why four inches below the knee was ongenomen by is be, certain halakim is because the, the what's his name in England? Yeah, the rabbi so from Rabbi yeah, Rabbi Falk I was I, I, I was born in Gateshead. Yeah, and I grew up five houses down from Rabbi Falk. And Rabbi Falk was the person who had Yerushalayim Yisera, and he felt that four inches below the knee was a one-size-fits-all, that if every woman's must be to have her skirt four inches below her knees, then never will we come across a from Jewish woman whose knees are uncovered. Right. However, as we know, uh, you know, some people who have skirts two inches below the knee are also masked in the way they go that the knees never show. So four inches below the, the knee is not something that can be considered. Um, even a Khumra would only fall into the category of Khumra Yusera. And I don't think a husband would have any right to enforce that upon his wife. What's say other clothing? He says, you know, I don't want you to wear red. I don't want you to wear... I mean, this, this totally shows there could be a hundred issues in clothing. Where, where do you establish, you know, he's... Look, it's, it's, he doesn't tell you how to dress. You don't... Like, there is an element of sort of privacy, a person, and it's within the halacha. Where do you say, hey, you have a right and you don't have a right? I know, I'm, I'm, I, these are hard questions. <laughs> and I don't know that there are answers. It's like each case has to be looked at differently. I, I'm not that, asking you... That, that, yeah. that, that's the real answer. Yeah, I agree with Husband that. Husband and wife have to work things out between themselves. And they have to also be flexible to be able to work things out between themselves. What about Chumris and Hulchus Nida? So Chumris and Hulchus Nida is a famous Chasm Soifer. Yeah. Where, where the Chassim Soifa says that in Hilchas Har Chokis, when they are separated from each other anyways, and a husband could impose upon his wife greater levels of Chumra in Har Chokis. But anything that's to do with precious, a husband has no right to impose upon his wife. Sorry, anything that has to do, I missed that. Anything that has to do with? With precious. A, a husband has no right. He has shibudim, chiyuvim, and mitzvahs towards his wife, and he has no right because of chumrah to in any way be reminded from his obligations towards her. Now, you're going to turn around to me and you're going to ask me. I know what your next question is going to be. There's a famous Orzarua, which is brought down by the Shach and the Tans, um, in Hilchus Vestas. Um, Orzarua, which was ongenumen by Roiv Chalke Kalnistra. If the husband wants to be masmer on it, and the wife doesn't, is he entitled to? And that, I will tell you, depends on what their level of shalom bias is. If they have good shalom bias, you know, you have to pick your battles. And every husband and wife will argue about certain things. And it's healthy for a husband and wife to argue about certain things. A husband has to know which battles to pick. So, talking about battles, are you supposed to be your, spou- your spouse's mashkiach? Absolutely not. 
So let me, let's get, I'll give you an example, then you give me back an example. The husband doesn't go to davening in the morning, right? Is the wife supposed to say, you know, listen, Mice, you're a bentaira, why aren't you going to davening? Yes or no? Yes. But not because, not because she says mashkiach, and not because the benodim lamakim of going to shul to daven, but because someone who doesn't daven is not a productive person. She's saying in this case she should be the mashkiach. It's not so much the mashkiach. She, she has the full right to turn around to her husband and say, listen, you know, I, I, I'm not interested in my husband's food in bed till 10 o'clock in the morning. She's saying it's not else. It's, it's not else. The mitzvah is not else. Yiddish case. So let's say he gets up at eight o'clock or seven o'clock and he doesn't go to daven and he, he goes he goes to work and she says, look, I really would like you to go to daven with a minion in the morning. Yes or no? She can bring it up to him, but she meaning a husband in our circles, a husband who wakes up at eight o'clock in the morning and goes to work and doesn't daven um, shows a deeper something deeper is wrong with him. And the wife is probably more concerned about that than about his actual not davening. I'm going back to the question. The husband gets up at 8, 7, he goes to work, doesn't go to work. Should she or shouldn't she say something? The prophet says to Mishle, If she finds a way to do it, okay. she um, should do it. But she should not do it. The husband, is, the husband isn't really kevir itim. Is it her job to be the mashkiach and say, look? No, she can mention it to him. She can mention how happy she would be. Okay. The, hu- the, hu- the husband, the wife is wearing uh, tight clothing. It bothers the husband. Is, should he be the mashkiach? Perhaps. I'm a suffocate about that. And was, what's, your, what's your opinion? Look, my, you know, there's a steer in the Chafetz Chaim. I'm going to, you know, in, in Havis Chesed, he says, famously, he says, you know, it's very hard to give Techachab, as Manazay he brings it from the Ramublin, I think, right? Right, right. But in, in, in Mishnabur, he, he does bring it, and, and it's a struggle. In other words, you know, and, 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 and I think, you know, it's like Rav Gifta said by Rav Alkiel's Chasen, he says, you know, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it, there's, there's no yes and there's no, no, it is. It's it's very it's okay. Put it this way: if it's going to create more damage than good, the answer would be no, right? This is this is okay. certainly not a case of you know. Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Absolutely. Right. So on the, on the on the other hand, like if it creates a healthy discussion, like what's bothering you that you're not, or you know what's bothering you that you. So that's a good thing. So I, I mean, so the answer is 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 will it negatively affect the marriage or not? And if the answer is yes, that becomes very, uh, that becomes very problematic. Right? Shalom bias is doichet kamat every mitzvah. You might have shame on Shem for Shalom bias. The Gemara says that the only mitzvah that you should, yeah, the only mitzvah that you should ala p'sachim is Neiris Hanukkah. And there's only one thing that's doichet, Neiris Hanukkah, Neiris Shabbos. So Shalom bias comes as like the assay that's basically before any other one. So I would, my my attitude is I would go with the Chafetz in Havas Chesed, that there's no Teichacha. On the other hand, if there's, um, you know, if it, you know, if if it's going to affect the marriage in a negative way, I would say no. But you know, but is it worth the conversation because it reveals something about your spouse and it's something that something inside must be hurting? It's certainly worth a discussion. That's that's what I would say. I gave you a parve answer. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Agree with you more. Is there a mitzvah of kibudav aim when you have meddling parents? You have a meddling mother-in-law. She wants to come for Shabbos, and when you mention the name, your wife just looks like she's going to die. Do you tell your mother, Ma, 
uh, I'm sorry, you, you just, it's not a good idea you, you, for you to come here. You and Hani don't get along, and it's not good. I don't know whether you should say in a way of you and Hani don't get along. Okay, I agreed. I said that, that but because then now you're just going to create more center. You're saying, my, figure it out, but it's not a good idea. Kibbutz is obviously a tremendous mitzvah, but if it's going to affect negatively your Shalom bias, try to be nice as much as possible. Right, and what you're saying is not uh, just your opinion, but it's a machab in Shulchan Aruch, right? Let's just tell the Elam so that they know. Right. So Nebun Ezra, Ayin Dalad Sifyud. The wife says, I don't want them to come at Neshimei really, or Meitzirinli. Shaymanlah, listen to the wife. The word Shalom Bayis is Daich HaKibadav Eim, astounding. I mean, the argument would be made, by the way, that it's not Daich HaKibadav Eim. You can go straight, you can go straight to Reish Memon Yeridei for that. Isha, Dime Di Gemara, and Isha's not Metzuvah. That's because Shalom Bayis. You're right. It's because she's Meshubbeth. I don't mean that, but but her husband is. So his parents want to come. So he's being doyed right, his right, Kibbutz right. because of the girl. That would be the question. Because of the girl. Right. So right. so so you see the Shulchan Aruch says they're not. And the question is, why not? I mean, you know, Shalom Bayis is a wonderful thing, but Kibbutz Aim is in Aseris Hadibris. And... And I would put to you, and by the way, the Sefer Hasidim, which is, it's, it's the Shulchan Aruch, it's the Be- Beis Yosef says, you know, if you have a mother-in-law like that, or it doesn't have to be a mother-in-law, it could be a father-in-law, the same thing. Einodem darim nachash bekrifa. Yeah, he brings on this halacha not to invite. But, you know, my Havrusa is a Talmud Chacham. He said, you know, the halacha in, in all of Kibbutz Aim, it has to be Mishal Av. If you feed him, it has to be with his. If, if, if you feed him, but it's going to cost you your health, that's already Michelle Ben. And what's more important than Yishal and Bayes? So if it's affecting Yishal and Bayes, then it's already Michelle Ben. And I thought that was an interesting story. It's, it's a very good story. Okay. Let me ask you another question. Well, again, it's, it's, it, it is important to point out that obviously there's a difference between Kibbut and Moira. And where Yishal and Bayes may be Doicha Kibbut it's certainly that not Doicha Moira Avraim. Yeah. And there very often are situations where a husband feels that his mother may have insulted his wife or whatever it may be. There is no excuse for the husband to say something hurtful to his mother because he's protecting his wife. There's a tremendous amount of sensitivity that's necessary. And always remember that parent is a parent. Right. Even even a father of Russia, Mechayet, I think it's in Reish Mamalaf. And the Ramah who argues says even if you're not Mechayet, to be Mechabed him, right, even a Mamzer is Mechayet, to be Mechabed. But, but, but uh, the, the parent who created this Mamzer with an illicit affair. But even uh, the Mechayet, says if I remember correctly, you'll check on me. And the Ramah who disagrees, but I think the Taz over there says that um, you're not Mechayet to be Mechabed, but you're, cert- you're not allowed to be Mavaza. You're not a letter hurt. You can't be. You can't yeah. be in the Yeah. So just two. Okay. Okay. So um, what about Hassan and Kala teachers, right? And I, you know, I, I did some, uh, made some calls, and I've, you know, I'm sure there are good ones, but I've heard horror stories also. Um, they they teach Hassan and Kalas incorrectly, and it leads to a divorce. Could the Hassan and Kala teacher be taken to his entire and be um, basically asked to pay the the wedding, etc. Al Dina de Garmi? And what am I being saymach this on? I'm being saymach this on the, it's sort of accepted psak in the Paiskim, that there is Dina de Garmi, let's say, by a physician. A physician who, who messes up 
in a way that would, I guess, be called negligent. Not like, you know, there are some people, you, you know, you can't cure a disease, but, he, you know, he did something wrong. He prescribed the wrong medication when it was well known, right? So the, right. the Paiskim say that there's a Dina de Garmi, and it's based really on the Gemara. The Gemara says, Amara Dina Lashokhani, and a money changer, you know, it's he, 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 he mixes up the genuine Benjamin Franklin's with cryptocurrency, right? The, the Shulchan right? To be current. Allah is his chayv of Dina de Garmi. Would you say a chassan and kala teacher? You know, they're giving very important advice without any license, right? And I don't want to share, so maybe you probably could share the bad advice better than me because you actually do the gittin and I and I haven't, I've never done it yet. But would you say the chayv of Dina de Garmi? You gave me advice. It was terrible advice. It caused it hurt out, caused us to get divorced and I, I, I want to take you to the Tyra, our wedding was $50,000, and pick your favorite hall. It's an interesting story, but Lamaisa, of course not, because, uh, it, you know, it's never a direct result. So you're saying it's not, it's yeah, not, Garmi, it's, 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 it's not like you gave him the wrong dollar bill, this is too far down the road to be called Garmi, it would be much more in the land correct. of Grama. Correct. And there's so many other variables that are nichmas into the equation. Okay. Tell us, as somebody who is, um, let me ask you a, a more sensitive, Shaila. A husband or a wife um, get into a fight, and one of them wants to withhold um, intimacy as sort of as, as anger, as a weapon. Talk to me halachically. What, what, what is your stance on position on that? I dealt yesterday with a case of a woman whose therapist had called two rabbanim in front of her and asked them if she can stop going to the mikra. And both Rabbonim said yes. They were by me for a divorce yesterday. And those Rabbonim made a terrible mistake because you can never pass in such a thing without having spoken to the other tribe. That, that's Wow. Going back to your question, may a husband or a wife do it? Can I just can I interrupt, you for, I interrupt you for a minute? Sure. Okay. I was very close with the Tzitzel, yes, all right? Yeah, he was a first cousin of mine, right? So I went I, into. I learned. I learned Gitan by him. Okay, so I used to go into him all the time. Right? I asked him for smicha, and I I called him on swatch on a on a and I was very friendly. We're very close, right? I'm talking about very relation, Talmud, right? And he started screaming. He says, "Ich paskinish bin adam And he slammed the phone down at me. He said, "Wow." <laughs> okay, but go, go, so go, but see, yeah, yeah, Rabbanim to Paschi and things like this without asking, it rises to the level of Dina de Garmi. I would go back to these Rabbanim and ask them to pay for the wedding, okay? Okay, but continue your story, okay? But you want to know if a spouse may withhold intimacy out of anger. The true answer is no, he or she may not, because they have a shibut to their spouse. Um, but what that does obligate them to do is to make up with the spouse because being intimate with the spouse when you are upset at him or her is also not and it's clear in Shulchan Aruch someone who is in a fight, let's call it, with his wife um, has to make up with her um, before being intimate with her. So the answer really is no, he or she may not withhold, but that obligates them to make up with each other. Okay, so let me, let me twist that question now. Let's say the wife or husband are not withholding intimacy as a weapon, but because they're so mad at the other person that they push it, they can't, if they can't do it. What's Allah then? Look, there are so yes in the Gemara of If a wife or, or a husband, it's usually the wife, um, 
feels that she just cannot be with her husband? No, I'm not talking about on a permanent level. I'm saying somebody is really upset. You know, uh, a husband or a wife went to a Hanukkah party and the spouse was particularly hurtful to the other one's parents. Some, there could be a thousand stories, right? Missed the right. birthday, missed the whatever it is, and they get so upset. They said, "Look, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing it in revenge. I just can't, I can't be intimate with this person." In other words, is the din of my redis? I want to talk in Lamdish. Is my redis has to be with somebody saying I'm doing it in revenge? If somebody says Kenish, is that on my redis or is that no? That's you know, you have relationship issues, work them out, and you, you fellows will be able to be intimate again. You can't you. Look, Meredith comes in two types, right? The Dina and the Mitzahanale. Yeah, so that the Mitzahanale means else, it's re, it's it's Mitzahanale means it's to revenge. It's revenge. Yeah. So I'm talking about where it's not revenge. Yeah. Okay, but let's continue the, the Shailan. I was like, I, I, I'm so I'm so upset at what they did. I can't. I just I can't even be in the same room with you. I'm a Kenish Kamenish. Yeah. Talk to me about you. You deal with Gittin, and sadly, there's lots of them. What? Why? What's going on? You know, why there's so many? What's going on? What happened? Uh, when I grew up, nobody got divorced. Look, in before the war, before when the Eden was living in the Stateloch, then getting divorced was a woman putting herself into a position where she was alone, unsupported, and unable to even earn a living. In today's day and age, where women are sometimes the sole breadwinner in the house, rightly or wrongly, um, sometimes a joint breadwinner in the house. A woman is not so dependent financially on her husband. Therefore, the option of divorce is much, much, much higher up on the list and is used much more often than it used to be used. That's what I find. You're saying the women are more empowered? Correct. So my question is, is that a bad thing? There was, until now, women basically you could do anything you wanted, and there was there was no to, there was no fit, there was no sharing of the power. I mean, the power was he was the breadwinner, he was the society, but so he could be incredibly basically as abusive as you wanted, and there's nothing she could do. Now a woman actually some earn a living, some earn partial living. They say, look, I could I could survive, so it gives me the ability not to put up with a lot of stuff that my grandparents didn't. So is that bad? I, it's sometimes even worse. I, I hasten to add. Sometimes the woman knows that uh, the law of the land with equitable distribution and alimony is going to put her into a much stronger financial position by getting divorced than she would be by staying with her husband. Sometimes that's an attraction to get divorced. Is that necessarily a bad thing? <laughs> Look, the fact that women have more power is not, not a bad thing. But the, fact, the, 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 the effect that has on the commitment that a woman has to her husband and to marriage, that is a bad pizza of something that's not necessarily bad. So one reason you're saying is that the women are more empowered and they would have stayed in a, in a, in a, in a miserable marriage, you know, decade, you know, generations ago and today they don't. Are there other reasons for an increase in divorce or no? Look, let me tell you something, Do you know what the most selfish creature in the world is? It's the yeshiva bachel. And perhaps rightfully so. Imagine a six-month winter's mom, a yeshiva of 40 bachel. They're learning yavamis. And a bachel goes to the yeshiva, to the mashkiach, whoever it may be, 
three weeks into this month, and he says, uh, Rabbi, it's not working out with Masav Yusuf. So the Rajiva tells him, the Moshkiah tells him, keep on going for another week or two. He comes back a week or two later and he says, Sigate. And the Rajiva tells him, okay, Lazov the Chavruza. And he turns to his Rabbi and he says, Rabbi, what's going to be with him? It's a six month man. It's Yavomis. He's not going to survive on his own. You know what the Rajiva's going to answer him? I've seen it. And you know what? It may be right. Take this. Bachar who's married to his stender and put him into a room with another person who he has to live out the rest of his life with. Is that not asking for problems? But these problems... Let me just tell you, they say a story that there was a guy, in, he was a Bachar was sitting in yeshiva, you know, um, denied a Badika's Chametz, and he sees a young man come in and uh, take open a Gemara and start learning. So he goes over to him, he says, you know, it's it's Erev Pesach. Like, doesn't your wife need you now? Like, you here and you see her? He said, yeah, my wife needs me. But my wa- I asked, my, my wife came, told, lo- looked at me. She said, look, if you want to help me, the best thing you could do is just to get out of here. Okay, so that's why I'm here. So yeah, 15 minutes later, the guy closes his Gemara. So he starts leaving. So the guy says, the Bach asked him, why are you leaving? He said, why am I leaving? There's only so much I could do for my wife. <laughs> okay, that's uh, you talk about. Okay, that's a yeshiva joke. But let me let me share with you. You know, Rebbe Hanan famously he learned in Rabin, and he had a son. Right? Uh, it could have been Reb Semcha. I don't know. And he he started preparing to go home for the the bris. He was married, so the Chavetz Chaim he told the Chavetz Chaim that he's leaving. He's going home for his son's bris. The Chavetz Chaim says to Bistamoyel. So. In other words, he was telling him, they don't need you for the bris. Why are you going home? You're going right. to be battle learning? So, you know, I, I, when you say the yeshiva bacha is the most selfish thing, there is something about learning that, that um, but, but this, by, by, by the way, in defense of the yeshiva bacha, because I consider myself a yeshiva bacha, the same yeshiva bacha who you say is so selfish, right, will often, you know, stay in the base medrash till he's physically exhausted, Right, and could barely get back to his room. So you know the selfishness, in other words, the lack of looking out at other asakim doesn't just go to a wife. If it has to go towards self too, and at that case, it's it's consistent with the theory of you know Adam Kiyamos Pael, right? Uh, again, I'm not attacking Chalili Yeshiva Bachrim. They're supposed to be doing that, but there's a reason why a Bachrim learns in Yeshiva and a Yungerman learns in a Kailu. For those years, he's supposed to be the most selfish Bria in the world. However, when he gets married, that has to change. And very often, it takes time for the change to take effect. Okay. Why so talk to me. Given that, the above, and, and given why. the above, what do you see in, in, in the getting that come to you? <laughs> That's why a lack of commitment on the woman's side and not allowing work to be done is so instrumental in the rising divorce rates. Explain, explain what that, I didn't understand what you said. If, if, if a woman would understand, and I'm talking about, look, there, there are people get divorced at all ages. I'm talking about the younger couple who get divorced. If the girl would understand that her husband has spent the past six, seven years of his life in a society where he's taught to focus on himself and his own spiritual growth and lahedya to block out any focus on anything other than his own staging and pleasure. If, if a woman would realize that this is all sight like 
And it's something that's going to change and with the right help and assistance can be brought to change. I believe we would see a lot less of our young couples divorcing than we're seeing at the moment. You're saying that the Yeshiva Bacharim are, like you said, the most selfish creature in the world and, and that's how they were taught and the girls... Uh, well, the girls have to learn how to work with somebody who has basically just had six or seven years of that education. Correct. I mean, do you think that the I mean, should there be yeshiva, I mean, and it's, does these, should the yeshivas be speaking about these things, or it's sort of like self-understood that it's going to self-correct? No, the yeshivas definitely should be speaking about it. The yeshivas I, should, and the seminaries should. Okay. Rabbi Stroll, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> All right. Joining us from Emeritus Yisrael is Tali Rosenbaum, who's an individual and a couples therapist. Um, she's also a licensed intimacy therapist. Welcome, Tali. Hi, thanks for having me. Tali, why is there an increase in divorce in the uh, Haredi world? Well, that's a big question. I think that uh, as couples have more of an option to divorce and there's more openness to getting divorced, um, there's more access to it and that's a choice for them, um, I think that we see more of it. I think that's probably a different answer than what you might have expected. I think that lots of times when you ask that question, um, people say, well, people aren't really willing to work on their marriages anymore or they want instant gratification, um, that kind of thing. But I'm, I'm offering a different suggestion here that perhaps there are couples who should be getting divorced. They maybe never had the option before to get divorced. Um, and now it's perhaps seen as something that actually is an option when the marriage isn't working out. Um, let me, I mean, when I say offline, let me go off, off, off course for a minute. Um, I speak to um, divorcees, both men and women, who were unhappy in their marriage and got divorced. And I speak to women, they say, you know, it was 10 years ago, I thought I would have been married three times by now. But, you know, once you get into the divorced world, A, the pool is so small, and B, you know, everybody's coming with their own issues at this point. It's not like, a, you know, a tabula rosa, right? It's, and, um, and men and women, they're saying it's, it's much harder uh, to get remarried and find that uncomplicated partner than they had thought. Do you find that to be the case? Well, yeah. I mean, certainly, and the, the statistics do show that second marriages um, have kind of a, a lower success rate. It is much harder the second time around or even the third time around. Um, and certainly, divorce is not, you know, plan A. It's plan B. Um, whether or not the... Uh, the shikul, the thinking should be, well, should I stay in the marriage because I, um, at least I know what I have. I mean, that might be uh, a way that people decide to stay in their marriages. I think that what we need to look at is what's going on in the marriage and, and can it be attended to and how can it be attended to? And um, are both partners willing to look at what's going on in marriage and to take accountability for their part in the marriage and to create uh, repair. So with the right kind of therapy and uh, with hard work, uh, often marriages can, can really, you know, end, end, end the marriage that they had, but remarry each other in a way. That's what I sometimes tell couples. You know, this marriage that you have now really has to end. But the question is, do you want to get married again to someone else or do you want to get married again to each other? And does, do, do you 
as individuals have the potential to make it work uh, together this time by changing the old patterns and kind of experiencing a different type of relationship together. So there's certainly options for couples who really want to stay together for many reasons, not just because it's hard to find a new partner, but also because couples who have built a family together, you know, there's quite a, there's, there's a lot to consider when you have children. Um, and so when there's the potential to be able to build something new and there's hard work, it can happen. But I have to say that there are some times where really couples um, choose divorce and that's the right choice for, for, for different reasons. And that's when, that when the Gemara, when the Gemara says, you talk about this marriage will end and a new marriage starts. So the Gemara says that the first zivug, and the second zivug is Lefimasav, it could be talking about the same marriage. Exactly. The first marriage is like this heavenly created thing. It often doesn't go right. We often aren't as heavenly as we were meant to be. But the second marriage is who we really are, which is Lefi Maisov and it's actually to the same person. I think another meaning to that is that marriage isn't just something that happens with the first try. You know, marriage is hard work, and you don't know all the answers going in. It's trial and error, um, and conflict and starting again, that's part of what recovery is. Let's start over. You know, let's recover. This wasn't perfect. This didn't work. Um, let's try again. But it's the same two people learning each other along the way, because when we come into it, there's actually really no way to come into it um, fully prepared, um, which is, by the way, Another answer to your question, why are there so many divorces, a lot of it does have to do with um, just not adequate preparation for marriage and not enough time to really get to know the person who you're going to marry. There's often a great deal of pressure that's put on a couple, especially young couples, um, specifically if we're talking about early divorces, divorces that happen sometime after a few months or within the first division, and often there's such a difficult transitional period for a young couple who really didn't know each other very well, maybe dated a few times, had a short engagement, and then all of a sudden their life changes. It's like it's like a water like a like a watershed moment that everything that came before is very different than everything that comes after. And suddenly you take on a new role um, and uh, expectations, expectations for a partner, expectations for emotional intimacy, expectations for physical intimacy. Often there's a lot of pressure um, and the couple is not ready for it or one partner is not ready for it for various reasons. And there's so much outside pressure on this couple to function, to perform, to look great, to to, to show up with this ideal sense of, you know, we just are so happy together, when often there's not. There, there, there aren't sufficient communication skills. Um, there's often really not a good um, connection between them to even begin with, um, often because the period of getting to know each other before getting engaged wasn't sufficiently long enough to really see each other in different kind of contexts. Uh, it's a few dates where you put your best face forward and you only show the best side of yourself. So, you know, you don't really know the person authentically. You don't know them in times of stress. You haven't even had a real conflict with them. You haven't learned how they get triggered, um, how they take responsibility, how they recover. Um, and so you haven't really established yet a sense of, of intimacy, of safety, of reliability, of curiosity, of authenticity, um, even empathy, all the things that are really necessary 
to make a marriage work. And you don't always know that going in. And when that happens, and I will often see couples 10, 15, 20 years down the road, which, you know, they really, if they would have had support to do so, they probably should have gotten divorced in the beginning because they, you know, healthy people don't really stay in unhealthy marriages. And sometimes you get married and you find out that the person does not have the capacity for intimacy. They um, may have a personality disorder. Um, they may have um, expectations which are beyond reasonable. They don't have skills to create that um, that safety. And so when that happens in an early marriage and there's... What does that mean? Mutual... What does that mean they don't have the skills to create that safety? Well, you know, if they have a narcissistic personality disorder or they have borderline, I'm talking about extreme cases. But I think if they don't even have the willingness to go for therapy early in. Um, and that's really the difference when you say, well, how do you know? How do you know that I should stick it out? Or how do you know that I should just leave now? And I say, look, if your partner is willing to, to do the work, to go to therapy, to try and learn the skills and make the marriage work, then you should give it a try. But um, I, will see par I will see women or even men that will come in and say, you know, my partner is not willing to do anything. They're not willing to go to therapy. Um, you know, I'm miserable, and I don't have a partner in the process. And so sometimes there really is no choice, especially if you're feeling coerced, oppressed, not listened to. And what I say to parents in these situations when, when, when they ask, you know, what do I do? Do I let her? Um, do I let my daughter get divorced? What about the other children, they have to also get shidduchim, and it's going to ruin their shidduchim. And I think, well, you know, why should your daughter be miserable in a marriage where she's um, feeling unsafe and she's feeling oppressed if, because you're worried about the other kids? And I think that that's an important message is that the ability to get divorced is there for a reason, and it shouldn't be stigmatized to the point where other children in the family are going to um, suffer. And certainly that the person shouldn't suffer in an unhappy marriage because of that fear. Wow. You just, you, you, you unpacked a lot of the material over there. Um, tell me, what are the, the, the four or five key things that you say, this is why people get divorced, and these are the things then that need to be worked on so as to create a, a happy marriage? What would they be? Well, people get divorced when they haven't been able to create these things. And not being able to create these Correct. things could be, could be a symptom of something deeper. But let's just say there's a willingness and a desire. There's an understanding. I mean, not everybody gets married having intimacy skills, having the skills for connection. We learn them along the way. But what we want to be able to do is have kind of like a mutual readiness to do that. And when that doesn't happen, when one person refuses to take accountability, um, then there's going to be more of a predictor that the couple is going to get divorced. If there really I, I don't know what, the, I don't know those, give me an example. Well, you know, if, if one person is saying, you know, my partner needs to change in order for me to be happy, I'm fine. I'm not doing anything wrong, but they need to stop, you know, if only, if only my partner would um, be this way or dress this way or act this way, then our marriage can be happy. So that would be one example of a dynamic that isn't going to be predictive for a lot of success. But if you want to hear like... What happens, kind of and what happens, what happens when the boy says, What happens when the man says that and uses it as leverage 
to get his needs met, um, that would be problematic because even if he's given hadracha by some very misinformed Hatan instructor, that a good woman is going to give him what he needs when he needs it. Um, a boy who's a mensch and figures it out on his own is likely going to say, well, I'm not going to use that to coerce my wife into doing something that she doesn't want to do or isn't in the mood for or is painful for her. Um, he's going to realize on his own, assuming he has the seichel, that he's not going to use that as leverage. So if you have a guy who is going to say, look, you know, Ishak Sheirosa Raton Bala, and um, you're Meshua Bedet to me, and I can prove to you from the text and from Chazal why you are Meshua Bedet to me, then I think you're dealing with a problematic situation. I think you'd agree with me, with David. Yeah, but here's what I'm struggling with, just as a, you know, as a, as a, as a Talmud of the Talmud. What does it mean then? Well, I'd like to believe that, you know, what we know about the Talmud is that often there are dry halachot that don't necessarily take into consideration the psychological context. And what I'd like to believe that it means that both partners are mandated to be very attuned to each other's needs. But I don't believe that the halacha can be used to coerce a partner into doing something that, you know, would be considered non-consensual. I don't believe that that's certainly not the way that I learned halachot. I don't believe that that's what the Torah wants. Um, you, you know, I, I'm sure that I have learned much, much less than you, um, but I have a feeling you would agree with me on this. I, I, look, I agree with you just from a, a common sense point of view, but then I'm, I'm sort of struggling to say what it means. It's like, you know, look, I, I want to go to my parents for Sukkot, Pesach, Hanukkah, whatever, and we've done it three years in a row. Well, Eze Ishik Shero, Sturit Sain Baila. Like, like it, yeah. I mean, does that mean fear, there's no fear play? Does that mean, like, you know, he's always on third base? Like, I, I'm struggling to understand what that means. I think that it means that if you want to um, use your leverage, your privilege, you will find a way to do it. And we need to ask the question is, why would you? And if you would, you know, is that maybe, you know, Valber Shud HaTorah on some level? Well, it's, when it talks about Isha Kshera, it's saying that this is this is uh, an approved method. It's, it's not talking about this is a mandated, you know what I mean? I like that. I like that. That's a good parish. Well, so, but I'm saying, you, you know, so it, it, it does, it does then... It, it, it was not seen as a, as a as a sort of a reactionary or secondhand, and it does seem that this is the, you know the appropriate way things should should go. And, well, look, I, and that's, know, what, that's is, what, what I'm what trying. What does Yishakshera mean? It doesn't say Yishakshera. It says Yishakshera. So what does that you know? What does it mean to be an Yishakshera anyway? Is that something that you know you want to strive for? Um, it means that you. I don't really know what it means, but, you know, okay. what I do know is that um, if it's used, and it is unfortunately often used, um, to manipulate women into um, doing things, especially things having to do with physical intimacy, um, that is not done consensually, then I think that we have a, a real problem. We have a real problem. And um, anything that can be done to um, enlighten those who teach um, hadracha, who, who do hadrachat kalot and hadrachat hatsani, about the importance of a consensual mutual relationship and about preventing any use of coercion based on um, rabbinic texts that prioritize a text over 
um, a woman's feelings and uh, her sense of autonomy, her bodily autonomy, her agency. And I say this because um, as a therapist, what I see walking into my office is a lot of people in trauma, not just the women, but the men too. Because if a man is taught that he can get his needs met through coercion, then he's also usually going to feel... Is that what they're teaching? Well, unfortunately, yes. I mean, you just said it yourself. It's, it's easy to teach that if you are looking to teach it that way. And many young women are told that um, they uh, should not ever refuse or say no um, because they want to be, they want to protect their husbands from sin. And uh, that can create a situation of really feeling no sense of autonomy, no sense of ability to feel like it's a mutual um, decision to engage. This is coming from the Hassan teachers and the Kala teachers or more like... Yeah, both. Both. And look, I have to say that, you know, it really depends on the kind of like um, the background. And I think that in certain communities, this message is becoming... Um, I think... I, I'd like to believe that um, there really is more of an emphasis today on uh, consent and on communication and on non-coercion. Um, at least I know that in some communities, this is this is part of the dialogue. But I don't think that that's necessarily changing so quickly in um, in other communities. And I and I and I really look forward to the day when this is going to be a normal part of premarital education in all communities. Um, in accordance with the ideas, which are really basic Torah ideas of um, mutuality and consent. I, I, I would not have imagined this. Well, we speak about this, uh, Rabbi Scott Kahn and I, we have a podcast that's called Intimate Judaism. And uh, although, you know, both of us come from the more modern Orthodox society, um, I guess Scott would be considered more modern Orthodox machmir, if you like that. They have put links of listeners from all walks of um, yeshivish and Hasidic society, and they write to us and they, they tell us that they learn so much from our podcasts because we talk about these things, and we talk about it, and I would like to believe in a very appropriate way, but we t- often talk about these basic conflicts that exist um, between uh, matters of intimacy and uh, matters of halachic and hashkafic. Judaism. So walk me through the two or three. So here are the three most common conflicts I get, you know, and then how you deal with them. Okay, so moving away from the um, the um, the situation having to do with intimacy that I talked about. So very often, so I'll give you an example. Sometimes. Um, there are situations where there's really a lot of pressure for the couple to get engaged very quickly. And um, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of ambivalence during the engagement itself. And the parents kind of on both sides who really want to be each other's machatini uh, push it through. And uh, after they, they, they kind of feel like, okay, once the, once the hasana is over, they can kind of breathe a sigh of relief. We got them to the other side. But that's often when the issues start. Um, it can be an issue of, um, for example... I want you to say that again. We are, they, the, the, the parents want to be mechutanim. Is that what you said? Yeah. Sometimes the parents, yeah. Like, I've, I've heard it said, you know, that the shidduch was made because my, my, my parents really wanted his parents as mechutanim. They, that they wanted to be 
Nachatani with that family. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised you're not really shocked by that, are you? You know, I read about I, I've heard about it, but sort of almost like as an exaggerated type of a narcissism. Like when you hear that it actually is existing on a real life level, it, it's just, you know, it's like when you learned about it and you've heard about it, but you've never really seen it that much. And then you actually say, oh, this is what I deal with. It's like, Oof. yeah, well, look, you know. You know I mean, I mean, Rev. David, you know, I'm a therapist, so obviously I'm not seeing the hundreds of, you know, very happy couples that have, that, you know, really had a wonderful um, building of, of uh, friendship and intimacy while they were dating and then got married and it turned into something really beautiful together over time. Those are not the people knocking at my door. So obviously what we'll say is that I, I'm talking from my experience with a clinical sample, but I have a lot of experience and I have a lot of people that come. So um, if you're asking for uh, examples, I can give you another example of, you know, once, uh, let's say um, a, a young person has been on medication for OCD or anxiety and they start to date and they go off the medication because um, maybe they maybe they really go off because they don't want to have to disclose anything. So they go off medication and they start dating and then they get married and all of a sudden there's like a crisis of OCD that the other partner did not know about and is having trouble dealing with. Now, obviously, this is a good example of you don't have to get divorced because of OCD. It's a good example of, you know, how you can um, learn to work with it and the person can get back on medication, but there's often a feeling of betrayal. I didn't know. I know that you've had... Um, podcasts before about um, disclosure and when you tell and should you tell. And I think that there's a lot more um, understanding that things should be disclosed. But often they're not, and that can cause a crisis. Another common situation that I see is sometimes um, these shidduchim that take place between very good girls, like girls who are, you know, the top, <laughs> quote-unquote, the top girls, and they go put together with guys who are, maybe like from very good homes, but maybe are not the most serious, sort of, maybe because they think that the girls will whip them in shape. Um, but then these girls get married and they find out that, you know, their husbands are not waking up to go to Minion, they're not putting on fill-in. And they don't understand how they got, how they ended up with this. They, you know, they kind of feel very betrayed by it because it wasn't what they expected. So um, that would be another example. Um, and again, often it's really just a matter of um, two people who kind of put their best faces forward. They just kind of wanted to be a kala. They wanted to be married. They wanted to get engaged, but they didn't really think too much about the person, how well they know each other. You know, had they been able to even talk about different emotions with each other, um, you know, that just really wasn't, uh, they just were not prepared to be in a marriage together. So let's go back over these. So the parents liked each other. They got married and the kids barely knew each other. Like, how do you deal with that? Well, I think that what we do is we kind of see, first, first I think we have to look at what, what, what we're looking at and what's happened and how do we process what's happened? How do we process um, the, 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 the feelings, the, the difficulties? I think, again, there's a huge role identity shift. The, the girl especially, all of a sudden she goes from just being a young woman who doesn't really have any expectations on her physical self and now all of a sudden there's checking and mikvah and covering her hair and asking a lot of questions. There's a whole new process. It's an identity shift and often there's a lot of cognitive dissonance with that shift and often there's a lot of feeling of pressure with that shift. So first being able to put it out there. Also, you know, there's a lot that the young man could be going through. Maybe he has some uh, difficult. Maybe he's been, God forbid, sexually abused, and um, 
the uh, expectation or the adjustment to intimacy is very difficult for him. So we have to kind of look at what we have, and then we need to be able to create a connection between the two people. If there's sufficient attachment between the two of them, that they're able to have enough compassion and empathy for each other to be each other's friends and partners through a process of learning how to repair, learning how to grow together. So often it's a very beautiful process to watch a young couple grow together, help each other, um, become closer. And, you know, there are a lot of ups and downs, but they learn how to navigate. They learn how to reduce the triggers with each other. And they learn how to um, recover if there has been, um, uh, you know, a, uh, a conflict. Um, but sometimes it's just beyond repair. That's the thing. Sometimes it is beyond repair. But that's, you know, if you can catch it early enough and with the right intervention, there's a lot of hope for couples if they're willing to, to go for therapy, to get the help that they need. There's no, there, there's, there should be no shame attached to the idea of going for therapy. And, uh, and, and you know, whether it's, and, and, it, and it shouldn't be just about intimacy because it's never just about intimacy. It's not just about the physical part of intimacy. It all goes together. Okay, what happens now to the case where the, the girl's a wonderful girl and she marries a boy and she finds out the boy isn't really that into learning or into davening, etc. And she thought she was going to marry Rosh Shiva and she's not even marrying a Kyle guy. Like, what do you do then? Yeah, so look, I think that sometimes it's important to mourn for the loss of what you didn't get and to see if you can adjust to the ability to accept, accept each other. I mean, the truth is this is a whole other topic for a podcast, but I also work with a lot of couples whose religious beliefs or adherence uh, are very diverse. Um, so, you know, here we're talking about basically two yeshivish people where one is not so into learning, um, so that's nuanced, but it still can be very um Stressing if you really if you if you thought you knew your potential uh, if you thought you knew your husband's values and then you find out that they're not what you thought they were um, I think you have to process that um, but at the end of the day if we want to be together it's really understanding each other being curious about what is that what is it about learning that isn't um, that that isn't drawing you and why it's not so much about what it's not so much about you said you would learn and you're not learning but it's more like well tell me more about why you're not learning um is it is it something that you were just made to do that you never really enjoyed is it that you don't enjoy what you're learning um do you want to learn together <laughs> i mean there's like all sorts of ways uh to be able to communicate about uh about what you um thought that you were going to experience and that you're not experiencing you see, for the woman, I guess it's it's a lot more difficult because, like, they sort of play an adjunct role. So she wanted her husband to be a Rosh Hashiva or a Magitshir. Um Well, you know, she's the Rebbitzin. I guess in other societies you would say, well, you know, you wanted your husband to be uh, an engineer. Well, he's, he didn't want to be an engineer, but you wanted to be a therapist. So you'd be the best therapist you could be. Like, what's it, your business, what he is? Yeah, but yeah. in our community, it doesn't work that way. It's like, the you know, the, the, the father yeah, is the head yeah. of the house, and he's the stature of the family, et cetera. So, like, you can't tell her, you know, live your life the best you can, and, you know, you, what he is, he is. It's really not so much your business, but you really can't do that. Would you, you agree yeah. with me now? Well, it's not about agreeing. I appreciate what you're bringing in terms of, you know, a certain sector of society. Um, you know, in modern orthodoxy, if a woman wants to be a Jewish spiritual leader or she wants to learn, 
um, or she wants to be called Rebbitson, um, she doesn't really need her husband to be doing that because, um, you know, she, she can get there. Um, and uh, But I understand that that's really not the case in most of mainstream orthodoxy. And so I do understand that a woman's stature can very much be affected if she wanted to be a Rebbitson and, uh, you know, her husband is not going to be achieving that status and therefore she won't either. And so, it, again, it's really about um, mourning for what you're not going to get, but, um, you know, making the most of who you are. And, you know, because often that's really an issue that there isn't a motivation for one partner to stay so from if their partner's not so from. You know, often I'll see a woman, she'll complain about, you know, her husband doesn't daven, and it makes me not want to daven. Well, why should it make you not want to daven? I mean, if your your personal relationship to God really should not be affected by what's going on with your husband. So it's really about what we call enmeshment. To what extent does my husband's behavior affect me and my behavior um, and, uh, you know, trying to be able to see the importance of a, of a bond, of a, of a marital dynamic that works. But within that marital dynamic is the concept of differentiation of each person being able to stand on their own two feet with their values and with their beliefs. But at the end of the day, being able to respect each other and stay curious about each other and not get so anxious and affected by each other. If there, if there was one takeaway from the conversation with you, or one thing that you could change, what would it be? Well, I, I'm, and I'm I talking would, more in Haredi society rather than yeah. the modern well, orthodoxy, which, which, yeah. which, can, which can, by the way, it, it could be the same. But if there was one takeaway, yeah. what would it be? Yeah, I would really like for um, couples to be able to get to know each other better, to have more opportunity to... Um, to not feel pressured into getting engaged before they're ready, um, to learn more, but to be able to have, to have hadracha for marriage that says, that doesn't pressure them, that doesn't pressure them to consummate the marriage before they're ready, um, to kind of slow things down and give them time because Life is about processes. Everything is a process, and it doesn't happen overnight. You know, pregnancy takes nine months, and, um, you know, puberty happens over time, and getting old happens over time, and also becoming intimate partners. Should so how many dates, Tali, how many dates do you recommend? That's, it's, that's really hard to Just give to me say. ballpark. Well, again, it's, it, it's really hard to quantify because you could also have 12 dates where you're sitting there and just staying on a very superficial level. So it's right. not so much the number of dates. It's, it's what's really spoken quality, about. It's the quality, yeah, the quality. of the relationship. And it's, and it's the so authenticity. So if you had to... It's coming, it's coming with your authentic self. So, so what's the least and what's the most? Give us some bookends. Well, you know, I mean, obviously, to be culturally sensitive, you know, you know that if you're in a Hasidic society, there's a Bishel. And, you know, there's a Lachayim after the Bishel once or twice. So that's not enough. Okay. And as far as the most, I don't think that, I think it can be open-ended. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that it's really up to the couple to, to know when they're ready. And again, it's also a matter of, so of what's, where they are in give life. Us, give us a conversation during dating that should be happening that you find often doesn't happen and that if it happened would sort of, you know, open each other's eyes or create for, for you know, better understanding of who you are. What's What's, why didn't you discuss or what would it be? Well, emotion. It could be emotions. It could be love. It could be, yeah. it could be family. Like, yeah. what, what would it be? 
Yeah, it can be, you know, um, I'm feeling very vulnerable about, you know, I'm feeling very nervous about when we get married or um, I'm worried about this or I feel kind of disappointed um, or I feel rejected or I feel abandoned. Any kind of um, any kind of expression of intimacy is really about sharing the emotion and then having that emotion held by the other person. So the language of emotions, it's not so much the content of what you talk about, but it's how you talk about it. Um, you know, I feel pressured or I feel worried. A lot of times I'll have a couple, this wasn't even a Haredi couple, it was a Ati Lumi Haredi couple, um, that, you know, she was very, very nervous. She had actually, unfortunately, been through some traumas and she was very nervous about um, the wedding night and all that. And she was told by her, so she, her, she wanted to speak to her husband-to-be to kind of prepare him, to let him know that she might need some time. And um, so she said, I want to know if we can talk about after we get married. And he said, no, my husband teacher said, I'm not allowed to talk about these subjects with you. And so they were they were barred from having the conversation. And, of course, there was, um, you know, tragic consequences to that. So that would be an example. And that's not even in the Haredi society. That's, you know, that's, that that idea that you're not allowed to talk about certain things. Tali, thank you very much for your time, okay? You're this very wonderful. welcome. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. bye-bye. Joining us from Passaic is Dr. Avi Michel, who is a renowned uh, dating coach, um, I guess marriage counselor. He also um, is sort of a mishpacha here to this program because his shver is Rabbi Nachum Ginak, who's been on our program many times. And Rabbi Avi is not only a doctor, but he's also a real Talmud Chacham. Welcome, Dr. Michel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Michelle, it would seem, and this is what, we don't have hard data. Oh, there probably is hard data, but I haven't reached out to the people who have it. There's actually somebody in Muncie who, who aggregates the data. That divorce among young people is on the rise. I've spoken to Rashid. One Rashid yesterday was telling me, he says, there are five young boys in his shear that are divorced. Like, assuming this is true, what is causing the increase in divorce among our, you know, our youngsters? So it's a good question, and like you said, we have to check the data, but my experience with my clientele and the places that I've worked, what I'm seeing is at least two or three major issues in how marriages are being founded. Um, One, like you mentioned, I work with couples, uh, with people who are dating before marriage, and then I work a lot with engaged couples and newly married couples. So what I am seeing, and I have spoken to colleagues who I think agree and have seen similar trends, is one issue is getting married in the first place is often happening in a way that is not well done, it's not correct. People are not necessarily marrying people that are matim for them, that are appropriate choices for them. Um, We could discuss why that's happening, um, but the short answer is outside pressure. We could talk about that. But people are dating poorly, perhaps getting bad advice in that process, and that is setting people up for failure in the first place. Um, And then the second piece is the marriage piece, which is people are not always ready for marriage. They don't know that marriage could be difficult. They don't know the challenges that marriages entail, and they don't necessarily, again, get the right advice on how to deal with these challenges. So as soon as things come up, they're blindsided, they're not ready for it, they're not properly trained, and they just move quickly, and that's the end of it, and unfortunately, marriage becomes very disposable. Well, what's changed? I mean, you know, America has always been, you know, the the land of instant tea, you know, um, instant relationships. Um, This hasn't changed since I'm young. Why are we seeing it now? So it's a good question, and again, there's, there's an interesting book called the... 
trying to find the book here, but there's an interesting book by a man named Ellie Finkel called The All or Nothing Marriage. And he talks about how, believe it or not, he came to study marriage in America and to see how exactly, to your point, marriage is worse than it's ever been. And that was the point of his study, and he started collecting data in, I think, Northwestern University. And it turns out that actually he found the exact opposite, that marriage in America is at its all-time best, People in happy marriages are at their all-time happiest, and it's very possible that people who are happily married today are happier in their marriages than their grandparents and for sure their great-great-grandparents. But as the title suggests, the all-or-nothing marriage is what's happening today in America, and by today I mean really just the last 20 years, 30 years, not, not even the last 50 or 60 years, is that people are expecting so much out of their marriage, and therefore they want their spouse to be their partner, their best friend, their confidant, their financial partner, their activity partner, that they could be somebody who they really just have for everything in their life, which means that when it goes well, like I said, people who are happily married are very happily married. But unfortunately, when we set the bar so, so high, so people immediately are disappointed that their spouse is not this or is not that, and they have this unbelievable hope, and they see people around them, whether they're correct in their perception or not, it's debatable, but they think they see people around them who are all so happy and posting these exciting pictures on social media, and immediately they say, well, that's not me, and so they become frustrated, and, and they, maybe they move quicker, like you said, than they would have in past generations. So you're saying that the expectations of marriage are higher? The expectations of marriage are higher. I, I don't believe that, that that has to be a problem because I believe that we're capable, like I said, with proper guidance, training, advice, hadracha, we're capable of reaching those expectations. So I don't actually counsel people to lower their expectations and just, you know, no, it is what it is. It, sometimes that unfortunately has to be the case, but especially if we're talking about a, a young chas and kala who are engaged or even newly married, let's shoot for the moon and let's have an amazing marriage with some amazing communication where you could actually be life partners and build something very special together. So I do agree. I think that the expectations are high, um, but I don't actually see that as a problem if we do this right and we have proper, like I said, draining and guidance and hadracha. So why are expectations today higher than they were 10 years ago? Again, that, I don't know the exact answer. That could be because of Hollywood. Hollywood is not around for is around for more than ten years, so I understand that that's not the the extent of it. But then there's also, like I mentioned in passing, there's social media where people maybe have more what they think they have more exposure to other people's marriages than they did ten, fifteen years ago. Certainly more than that. So, what impact does social media have on marriage? I, I think that there's opportunity for negative. I think there's an opportunity to have. There's general studies about the negative effects of social media where people assume that since everybody's posting their pictures in Hawaii or whatever vacations they're on, but that means they don't have that, and that's not me, and that's hard for me, and why, why do they have it so good? So social media definitely exposes that point where we have to see everybody else's happiness and wonder about it. Um, I think that there's also more communication between people and maybe that, that has a negative effect where people connect to other people who are struggling and start to wonder, wow, they're all having a hard time and maybe we could just all get out of this together and it becomes sort of a little bit of a negative support opportunity. I'm not 100% sure, but those are certainly some of the things that I've seen and could be possibilities. Do you think that, um, and I've heard this from some people, that boys and girls you know, the, the Shiva boys and the girls coming back from seminary are in two different areas? I don't want to generalize. Um, again, I, I think that there are times where people get married and they're not ready to get married. And that would certainly could contribute to the divorce issue. Again, I don't 
know why that would be different from 10, 20 years ago. I agree. But I definitely think that there are people who are not ready to get married. Either they're in relaxation mode and party mode or they're just not ready for the responsibilities of marriage and they're kind of just taking it easy and then they get married because of like either family pressure social pressure or for whatever reason um i don't know that that's you know has to be more boys than girls i think we stereotypically see that as being more the boy who's not necessarily ready for the commitment and the seriousness that marriage entails and stereotypically girls are more ready for it quicker as soon as they get off the plane but it's not always that way and who do you see when you see divorce? Who do you find initiating it more, the boy or the girl? I'm not sure. I, again, my experience, it's been the boy more, but I don't want to draw any conclusions from that. Well, if you were speaking to parents, and you are speaking to parents while listening, and you would be advising them on their kids and marriage, what, what would you tell them? Look, if you don't want to end that, up here, yeah. this is what I would suggest. Like, what would you tell the, the parents while listening? Question, because there's really, coming back to what I said about guidance and training, I think that this is very solvable with proper guidance and training. Now, parents are incredibly well-intentioned, and I have not met a parent who doesn't want their child's best interests, doesn't have their child's best interests in mind, but... At the same time, parents have their own negias, their own biases in what they want from their kids. So I think it's very, very important for the children, both before and after the wedding, to have people that they can trust. It doesn't have to have to be a professional, but I would certainly advise it to be somebody like a professional, if not some mentor in that objective role, where the parents have their biases, their friends for sure, for sure have their biases. So sometimes it's important to have, again, whether it's a therapist or, or a mentor of some comparable form to have somebody just to be able to speak to. And when you're dating, again, like I said, one of the reasons I see that people are having such issues in their marriage is they're not marrying the right person. So when you're dating, it's very helpful to not just listen to your parents saying, well, she's so wonderful or he's so, he's so great or having your friends say, oh, I don't know about her or him. So I think it's important to have somebody in that role to, to sort of really think about what you want and is this somebody you want to spend the rest of your life with. And even more so when it comes to marriage, I have been a big promoter and I've been working with colleagues on this just trying to spread the message of premarital education. I meet with couples before the wedding. I'm just coming from a session right now of meeting with a couple. We're getting married in a couple of weeks, and we go over some of the, you know, like you said, expectations of marriage, but also very much on how to communicate and how to deal with issues when they come up. And I have found in my experience that this has been a wonderful thing because couples are able to deal with issues that, you know, when I was dating and married and some of my friends unfortunately didn't have that experience where little issues would become big issues and then it led to divorce. I try to train these couples to be able to talk immediately with myself or a different professional about the issues that come up and how to deal with them in a very adaptive way and not go straight into divorce. So I think it's all about training and preparation. So here's a question. Our parents and grandparents stayed married, didn't get divorced, without psychologists, without social workers. Like, now we have all social workers, but we have more divorce. Like, like, like explain that. So you're, you're, you're probably correct that our grandparents didn't get divorced as often as our generation, but what we don't know is how they fared in their marriages. We don't know how happy they were. We don't know if what they tolerated in their marriage would be something that in 2022 we would say is good or successful. Again, there is certainly a mida of being mevater and, and, and savlonus, and, and those are wonderful midas that we encourage in yeshivas, but that doesn't mean that if we had the intricate details of uh, every relationship that we would necessarily say that they're all positive just because they simply didn't get divorced. I think a marriage is, is more than just yes, divorced or not divorced. 
She's saying our our parents or grandparents not getting divorced is not because necessarily they had good marriages, but because divorce just wasn't acceptable at that point, and now it's become acceptable. Correct. I think that that's a part of it. Obviously, many of our grandparents had wonderful marriages, but we don't know, you know, just because they didn't get divorced, that that means that they were happy. Whereas now, like you said, it's become acceptable. And therefore, if a couple is not happy, they immediately start to question, well, maybe this is it. Maybe I should call the call the rabbi, call the sofa, and we should get going, which is very unfortunate that it becomes such a quick option. But it is out there. And once it's out there, we can't really make that go away. So what would you tell parents who are listening you know, who have kids in Shadokim, et cetera, and want their kids to be happy, what would you tell them? So I w- again, I, w- I would encourage honest, honest communication with them. That's always a good thing in parenting, but especially here. A parent really needs to be open. I've spoken to some wonderful parents who are, you know, helping their children through this process. You have to just be honest with them. And sometimes it's uncomfortable for a parent to say, let's say to somebody who's about to get engaged or who is engaged, if you want to break this off, I fully support you. Sometimes the kid doesn't get that message. They get the message that my parents are going to be angry if I break this off. And then they sort of get pressured into it. Or sometimes they get the message from the parent that they really, really want me to marry this girl because It'll, they think it will be so good for me for whatever reason, and it's not so simple. So parents need to be honest with the kids and open with them and say, listen, you're in charge. We like this shidduch for this reason, but you're the one who's marrying her or him, and therefore whatever you think, we totally love you and support you. It has to be a little bit of an unconditional love in this process because if a kid feels any drop of pressure into going into this relationship or avoiding a relationship because of his parents, that can lead to, to catastrophe. So I think number one is that the parents need to be very open and, and unconditionally loving of the child in the process. And like I said, a little bit they need to try to take a step back and let people who are more objective get involved and, and, and direct their children to uh, success. Because I, I certainly believe that it's possible and it's something that everybody can do. So you, are you saying that every parent should, before their kid gets married, should have like a, a, a social worker or a psychologist sort of lined up? I mean, ideally, I think yes. Like I, I just met with a couple again tonight who their, their uh, Masada Kedushin says he strongly recommends it. He doesn't force it. strongly recommends that every couple go to, uh, to a counseling session. It's, it's one hour. It's not a big deal if, if all goes well. And if it all doesn't go well, which has often been the case, then I'm so happy that you're with me now and that we have a relationship to, to work on things. I've had many couples who have come with to, to me very innocently, like, oh, my parents thought I should come here or my Rebbe thought I should come here. And then months later, stuff happens. And instead of it just escalating and each parent getting into a bigger fight with the other parent and the other mechutin, it becomes resolved very quickly and easily in my office. And sometimes the parents don't even know about it. So tell us what are, in your experience as a counselor, give us the top five reasons people fight. Top five. Um, the OU actually did a good survey on this. This is the one I use in my sessions in 2009, so it's a little bit dated. But the top five that they have on well, there... When you, well, by the way, you have to give a disclaimer. When you say the OU did a very good thing, you have to say a disclaimer, and my father-in-law runs the OU. <laughs> <laughs> my father-in-law runs the cautious department. Okay. Yeah. survey was done by, um, I forgot which department, but one of their departments was like Elena or something like that. And they found that their top five reasons that they found among couples were financial stress, issues with physical intimacy, issues with having enough time for each other, issues with parents, family, in-laws. Wait, go, go through that slowly. Financial stress. Financial stress. Physical intimacy. And and, is, and you're talking about in, in early parts of marriage or, or later on? And, and altogether, at any point. And, and that's the number one reason for divorce? 
it's not in order, but it's the top five reasons for discord in a marriage, not necessarily divorce, just conflict. Right. If there's no money, there's no shalom biases. Oh, there could be none. There doesn't have to be, but there's often no shalom bias. There are people who, tzaddikim, I saw in Yerushalayim, who lived on nothing and had the greatest shalom bias. It's harder. Okay, continue. Physical intimacy. And and, and what, what's the problem there? It doesn't, you know, it's not more specific than that, but from my experience, what the issue is, is that they're having issues like with communication around it, meaning it's not that there's necessarily an inherent problem with intimacy, but something goes poorly, something very simple or, or regular that happens, and then they have a hard time discussing it, and then it becomes uncomfortable, and then they get upset at each other, and things escalate. So, so something very small, especially in an area that's very sensitive and personal to people, and that's not one that they're necessarily talking to people about, can become very intense and, and cause a lot of uh, painful feelings. And, it's, and it seems like if they have somebody who's capable, this is very avoidable. Yes, as, long as opposed as to the are, first one, which yes, is which is more as, difficult. Again, even with finances, it's the same thing. As long as they have a way to communicate about it, as long as they're able to speak about how they feel about their financial situation, about their intimacy, about you know the next one is family, and and family we can't cure family, right? If somebody enjoys going to their parents and the other one doesn't enjoy going to those parents, we can't make that go away. But as long as we can have them communicate well and feel that the other person hears them and understands them and gets the challenge and they're on the same team and it's not me versus you, all of a sudden their relationship can improve. Okay. Give us the next one. So the last two, I was family, intimacy, and finances. The last two are having enough time for each other, which again, that's, that's I, I'm seeing that as a more common, like the second phase of marriage, not like the Shonari Shona where they probably have too much time for each other, but that next phase when they're in their 30s and they're both working full time and they have a bunch of little kids at home, that's when having time for each other can be a tremendous stress. And oh boy, I hope my wife isn't listening to this. <laughs> I mean, the research shows, I, I just mentioned it, the research shows I think that the average couple at a certain point in their marriage has like 75 minutes to speak a week, something like that, which is wild. Um, it's certainly not something that they, they, they mention at Sheva Brachus, the young Kassan Kala, but it's not a lot. You know, you're running around with a lot of responsibilities in the world, so you don't have a lot of time for each other, and, and making an effort to go out at night or to have conversation, like real conversations, not just about what bills have to be paid and what kids have to be dropped off. To be able to have meaningful conversations with a spouse takes effort, and it's something that you have to proactively do and not just default into. Maybe Shana Rishon, it happens easily, but as, as time gets on, your responsibilities get, get heavier. So, yeah, you have to actually make an active effort to have a relationship. Okay, what's the, what's the last one? So the last one to me is, is funny because it's called communication. To me, that's just like includes all of them. Is that they all come from poor communication. If you're communicating well, then none of those are going to be a problem. And if you're going to be communicating poorly, then all of those and extras are all going to be a problem. So let me I ask you a question. Is the number one, but yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. So let's say I'm in Chenach. I I I was very spoiled from my rabbi in yeshiva, and now I'm a rabbi. I'm a tenth grade rabbi, a first grade rabbi, an eighth grade. What well, doesn't matter? I'm in chenach. I am the one who's teaching the next dayer, right? Tyrus Ivalanu Maisha, Zichru Tyrus Maisha and I have X number of kids, and I'm getting I I have uh, I'm getting along on a salary of sixty thousand dollars, and I just can't afford, you know, Doctor Avi Michelle. I'm just using you because you're the, the current our current victim, right? What, what would you advise such a person? I mean, is is it is is having shalom bias only for wealthy people? So that's a fair question. Now, to me, the answer is 
before the wedding, it's not even a question. After the wedding, I, I hear the question, and we have to think about that as a community. But before the wedding, it's not a question. Before the wedding, we're talking about having two or three sessions. It's a few hundred dollars. The amount of money people are spending on weddings, I don't need to tell you what they what the weddings look like. People are, are, are taking out loans for tens of thousands of dollars for a wedding, spending five, six, seven hundred dollars to make sure that the marriage is also, you know, coming out okay, is, is a very worthwhile investment. And to me, that's, that's a non-starter, and finances are not an issue. I personally, if you're asking me, I go out of my way. I, have, I give a reduced price to Hassan Kalas because it's such an important thing to me that it happens. But the bottom line is that that's something that when we're putting down all that money for a wedding, let's put aside $500, $700. I even have a couple of colleagues who I've seen that put out like a registry for premarital classes. And instead of buying them new dishes and plates and bowls, spend a few hundred dollars on getting them to marriage therapy sessions. But why, and why, why can't this be part of like the Hassan class? So I, I don't. I think it should be. I just don't know if every chassan rebbe is trained to to do. No, that. but why, I'm saying, but why as a community wouldn't we encourage? Hey, you know, we have kala classes, we have chassan classes, but now we have a one class on all these topics. You know, communication, etc. I, I I think I think it's a great idea. I think we should do it. I'm I'm all in favor. Okay, so now now it's post marriage. I got married. I'm in Kylo, or I'm not in Kamakleikaidish, and I just can't afford. And and we're having issues. What would you suggest? So again, I still believe in the cause. So like, I still think marriage therapy is the answer. You know, it doesn't have to be expensive. There's plenty of places where you can go where it's not expensive, and you know, we could. It, it, it's a specific question, but the answer to me doesn't change. Like, I believe that therapy is great. I believe that rabbeim are great sources of advice, but sometimes they will say, this is out of my purview, and it has to be, you know, go to a professional, and then I still think they should go to a professional. If they don't have hundreds of dollars, I think that's fine. That that doesn't have to stop somebody from going to therapy. There are many, many people in the world who are going to therapy without spending a dime, so. How do you, how do, you do that? With you, it depends, you know, who you're going to and where you're going. There are plenty of therapists that take insurance, and you're able to do it, you know, through that. It's 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 very doable process even without having to spend thousands of dollars. Okay, that's good to know that. Okay, so the takeaway is, Rabbi, is that you say is that these are the five reasons, and somebody both before or after marriage who's experienced and skilled can can walk you through these issues and often prevent disaster from happening. You know that that doesn't have to happen. Yes, and again, it has been not only it's not only my belief, but it's been my experience. I I just literally this week in the last four days, I've gotten two phone calls from Hassanim that I met a while ago. One of them I met three, four months ago. One of them I met over a year ago, and both of them said, "Thank you for your help." Right now, we're running into some issues. Is there any chance that you know you have time to meet this week? So these are people who maybe if they didn't have their parents already pushing it before the wedding, maybe they never would have met me. Maybe they would have felt too embarrassed to now start with a therapist. They don't want to ask their parents after one or two years married, but practically, since they already met me, they already have my number, it's not so big of a deal for them to reach out and say, hey, we're just going through a little rough patch. Do you mind, you know, helping us through it? And it makes the whole process easier and much less uncomfortable and much less awkward. And I, I hope that that could be helpful for them going forward. I, I think it has been. So that's a, that's a phone call that makes me very excited to know that they still feel that comfort and we could avoid these issues before they get big again. And do you find that the stigma of going to first to a psychologist is is lessening in our community or no? I I find that it is among younger people, people in their twenties, what they call millennials, maybe even into thirties. Sometimes I'll ask them where they got where they, where where they got my number from, and they'll say, "Oh, I got it from this friend that you took care of, and you, they said that you were great." So sometimes they give each other my number, which I don't think happens. I don't think I've ever had a client like over forty say that. So it definitely seems to be that way. Again, it also does depend on you know 
know which religious community. In some communities, it still remains relatively stigmatized. Others, not as much. But I, I definitely see a decrease over the age groups, where the younger people definitely seem to feel a lot less of a stigma. Javi, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you again for having me. Joining us from New York is Lisa Twersky, a renowned therapist with an expertise in marriage, pre-marriage, post-marriage, dating. Welcome, Ms. Twersky. Thank you. Question, are mar- is the rate of divorce among young couples, is it going up? I-, I think that there is more, yes. So, Why? Well, obviously, there's probably not one reason, but I think that in some ways, although it's, you know, distressing on the one hand, on the other hand, I think that the when you're talking about young couples, I think that people are catching on to things, issues, uh, problems sooner rather than later and are possibly getting divorced, trying to get help, and when there isn't help or the help isn't, you know, if a spouse isn't willing to get help or the help isn't helping, that people are not, you know, not staying and trying to build families that they then have a hard time managing because of whatever strife is going on, that people are actually catching things sooner, problems sooner in the process, and that's leading to some young divorces, at least part of the, part of, it's at least accounts for part of the problem. You're saying saying it's a good thing in a way. Uh, In a way, I I think it's a process. You know, it's a good step. Obviously, the next step in the process would be to figure out how, if if there is a way to prevent that altogether. You know, it's it's a process like if you're doing construction, it could look much more messy, unkempt, turbulent in the middle of the process than it did before you ever started. Uh, You don't want to go back but you also don't want to stay here. I don't think we should be sort of relaxing, like, oh, people are figuring out their problems and getting divorced. Great. No, we have to figure out what's the next step to get to a better place than this in the whole, in the larger picture of having healthy families and intact homes, et cetera. I think we're we're just in a process that I hope will get even better. Okay, so you're saying one reason is is because... People are more astute and they're more psychologically aware and they're catching things earlier before there's a bunch of kids and they're just locked there for life or the mess just gets bigger. That's one. Um, I I think that that, that's a large part of it. On the other hand, on the other part of where I hope we're going to, how it will get better is that, at least from my perspective, people who are coming forward because they're struggling in their marriage, they're coming forward because they want to work or at least one part of the marriage wants to work. I think we need to get better at destigmatizing some of the mental health issues that the community is struggling with so that it's not usually, or at least in my office, it's not the spouse of the person with the problem who's saying, I want out. It's the spouse of the person with the problem who's saying, I don't want to live like this, and their spouse saying, yeah, but I'm not changing, whether it's I don't want to acknowledge my problem, I don't want to own my problem, I, I, I don't, I don't, it's too daunting to work on my problem, whether it's an addiction, whether it's some other mental health problem. And at that point, where we are in our history is that the spouse of that person with the problem is no longer just going to sit with it if it's affecting them and their children. So if we could get better at helping, motivating, encouraging the person who has a problem to own it, get help for it, then maybe we would see fewer of those marriages end in divorce. But because we have enough 
education and understanding to see there when there's issues, but we don't yet have enough sort of way or we haven't figured out how to get the people with issues to get help, we're seeing a lot of marriages end. And if we could do something about the other half of things, that would definitely help get us somewhere. They are trying to work, right. and it doesn't work. The working doesn't work. They were never compatible in the first place. But 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 they, but yeah. My my point is is that the first point you made about people are more astute. You could say, look, you know, the world as mental health issues are discussed more often. People then come back and say, hey, my husband or my wife is I don't know bipolar, and they need help. They were never aware of that before, right? Right. So maybe so increased education you're saying is causing that. The fact that people do want to work on it, don't want to work on it. I mean. That's been around for uh, you know forever. So that I'm looking for the increase as opposed to just why do people get divorced? And like somebody just called me today, he said he sent me an email. He said a wedding was canceled the day of the hospital just now in uh, one of our immediate communities. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but my point is is that what's causing this increase as opposed to look? There always were people who wanted to work on their marriage. There always were people who just wanted to look for the exit. You know. So what else can you think of that's causing this sort of this sort of this you know? Uh, red wave that didn't happen of, of, of divorce. Well, again, I, I still contend that there are more people aware. I, I think that it, it creeps into a lot of issues, meaning if the awareness comes that, oh, we aren't compatible, or the awareness comes that there's a serious mental health issue, or the awareness comes that it's not okay to be abused, but on the other hand of things, not when there is incompatibility, because that can be between two people, and there needs to be maybe more education before marriage about finding compatibility and what that means so that you don't wind up in a marriage where you don't feel compatible, and we're in a day and age where living as a partnership because to just build a home with no relationship isn't isn't flying anymore. Now, whether that's a problem in compatibility and there could be better education about how to find compatibility or whether that's a matter of relationship and creating relationship and there needs to be more education about how to create relationship and what goes into creating relationship and how to prevent the erosion of relationship because we have better skills to navigate our conflicts and our differences and also, how do we get the people? I don't think there was always people who wanted to work and always people who didn't want to work. There were always people who didn't want to work married to people who weren't aware that there were options or aware what the problem is. And now you have all these people who are aware and not willing to live like this, but we haven't yet gotten to the people or figured out how to get the people who who really need help to get as much help as there are people who are saying, I'm not living like this forever. So it's probably several of those things. I don't think there's ever one simple answer to such a complex, difficult problem. It's probably a combination of all those things. Better education on a lot of different areas and better motivation to, to get people to work um, and to get people to get the right help. So I'll ask you uh, some of the other possibilities, okay? Yeah. The Internet, iPhone, increased use of pornography, you know, maybe um, maybe COVID, Maybe COVID has right. created a, a greater incidence of mental health. I mean, which it could be, it could be honestly, and I could have a skewed perspective. Meaning, when people wind up in my office, it's because they're willing to work. Now, if they're willing to work, but their spouse is not, then it doesn't matter if they're in my office saying my spouse is a porn addict and I'm still willing to work if their spouse won't get help. Is there more porn addiction because it's easier? Well, maybe, but there were other addictions before this. 
people were using drugs and before that they were abusing alcohol. It's really more about the awareness. Do I think that the, the Internet has done good things for our marriages? No. I don't know that I think that that's the reason for the divorce. The reason for the divorce is that people are not are, are more educated about what's okay and what's not okay in marriage. But all of these things, all of these problems, all of these societal ills have been around for a really long time. Maybe not in this iteration. It's internet pornography instead of other kinds of addictions that might be prevalent. And it, COVID certainly had a harsh effect on a lot of people's mental health. But if we were living at a different time and a different age and a different era of, of enlightenment, so to speak, you could have gone through a corona and you wouldn't see a spike in divorce because people would not be aware or understand that certain types of things shouldn't be, you know, don't have to be tolerated or that you should have something more in your marriage than this. So, you know, these are all contributing factors to people's unhappiness. But I think the divorce is more the awareness that unhappiness and unhealth is not something to just sit in. And that's why there's the resultant divorce. Yeah. So you're saying it's just in the last two or three years there's just been a wave of education. Well, I, I don't know that it's just the mo it's probably cumulative effect. Um, you know, it's a cumulative effect across the board and our and our attitudes. You know, there's a lot more understanding and support for mental health and for strong, healthy families and then across the board in our leadership on down. And so it's more possible and it's more understood and we're more aware of, you know, nuance beyond okay, intact is good and divorce is bad. We're, we're a lot more nuanced as a community in all parts of the community, whether it's the, you know, the articles you read in the magazines or whether it's the Rabunim and how, you, how they will speak about certain things and how they should or should not be tolerated. And for the every average, you know, layperson across the board, people are sort of saying, no, we need healthy. It, it, we need more than just intact. Uh, I'm just curious, one question, as parents... If, I mean, if that's the main, you know, contributing factor to divorce today, I mean, what can we teach our children? I mean, it sounds like it's a good thing. You know, you're educated and now you're aware of it. Like, is there anything we can do then to help our kids? Or we say, you know, it's a good thing. Like, if you're aware, you should really, you know, see if you want help. And if not, leave. Well, I, I don't know that it should be that simple. There's a whole process you go through to try and encourage. Can we as a community try and further destigmatize some of these problems so that more people will get help? Can we do better at education at educating about marriage and about relationship? Because then maybe when somebody's spouse comes and says, hey, there's a problem here. Can we go get help? They won't feel it. They'll be approached in a way that they can maybe accept that better a, because we've destigmatized the problems more, and B, because we've taught our young people how to have a relationship and how to have good communication and how to have an interaction in your marriage the way you should and how to build affection and how to build communication. Could we do better at education, educating pre? What, what do you look for in the dating process and how do you look for it and how do you know when you're feeling it and how do you know when you're feeling something that's troubling? All of these things are things that we should provide our children. Without a doubt, yeah. we should be doing better and better at them. I think we've come we've come from much less, and we're should be heading to much more. And and I think that would help our children tremendously. 
you think the destigmatization of mental health issues and the awareness of how to deal with, and these things that the, you we can actually we can work with these things you say would go a long way towards avoiding uh, divorce and creating for better relationships right and that would have to be big picture you know if if somebody's married to somebody and they know the right way to approach and it's somewhat destigmatized and the person can feel like they'll get help without feeling too bad, but let's say their parents are still in the old mindset of there's nothing wrong with my child. Oftentimes, that's what breaks the system down. Here's somebody who's saying, I can't live like this, and maybe the person peeks their head out and says, okay, I'll do something about it, and then, but, you know, it's a really hard thing to do, so I do have a problem, I don't have a problem, I do have a problem, I don't have a problem, and then they have all the support you don't have a problem, you don't have a problem, you don't have a problem. And then that's often what, what breaks the system down. And, and then the spouse who was hopeful that maybe something could change and they wouldn't have to get divorced or they wouldn't feel desperate for a divorce is now desperate for a divorce because there's nothing shifting. So it's destigmatizing de and educating across the board. So it, it would, you say, would you say that the stigma has gone down substantially over the last number of years? Yes, but not enough. So, so then the question would be, if the stigma has gone down, shouldn't that lead to a decrease in divorce rather than an increase in divorce? No, because the the stigma going down is not proportional to the amount of people who are still willing to see themselves in that space and get help for it, or the people around them, and the spouses who are not willing to just stay in something unhealthy and keep their children in something unhealthy is way above and beyond. It's a lot easier to to be educated and to embrace the notion that I should not be in something unhealthy and mistreated and neither should my children than it is to embrace that I have a problem and I have to work really hard to do something about that. So there's many more people saying, no, no, this is not okay, than there are yet people saying, yeah, I really have to do something about myself. There are many more now than there were before, but there's still many more spouses saying, uh no. I, I no, this is I can't. So it it still hasn't led. That's why I'm saying I I hope we're in a process. We're we're in the midst of the mess of the you know dismantling of one thing, but we have not yet arrived at the newly renovated building. Right. Well, thank you very much. Wonderful analogy. Thank you, uh, Ms. Tversky. Okay. Yeah. No thank problem. you. Take, Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Hello. Thank you for the wonderful program. I want to give the answer to this week's riddle. With regards to the first riddle, you can differentiate between a brick and when someone's parent passes away and one gets a rusha. That by the brick, the father is the one getting the mitzvah and the child isn't the one doing the mitzvah and they're not aware of the fact that there's a mitzvah going on, but, ha but the child is the one feeling the pain. So the one with the simcha of the mitzvah is the father. The one with the pain is the child. So it's insensitive to the child to say, Shechianu, if the child has, uh, as far as they know, the total pain with no upside to it. But with regards to the inheritance, the, 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 the child who lost the parent and also receives the inheritance they have something bad happen to them, they lost a the parent, 
they have something good happen to them, they got the inheritance. So their pain is mitigated. So therefore, they can say, Shechianu on the good that happens to them that they got the inheritance. With regards to the second riddle of uh, the difference of why Paroi um, was not Chayat uh, Misa and Avimelech was, was because in the case of Paroi, it wasn't, the whole thing wasn't his idea. His servants had brought him Sar. So Paroi could say, what do I know? As far as I know, my servants brought it to me. It must be okay. It's not like Paroi could say, I only relied on you know, from um, your mind to bring me, you know, my wives. It's how you relied on his servants, and that's the best he knew. With regard to Abimelech, though, it doesn't say that the servants brought started him. He sought he he sought her out. Once he's seeking her out, he has to uh, make sure that she's not a married woman. Thank you again for the show. All the best. Shalom, this is Abu Wolk. I'm on to the questions of this week. First question about Shechianu by the Bris. The remote says not to make a Shechianu out of Bris Mila because the Tzar of the Anuka, well, how does that stem with the halacha of Yerusha, where the person's father dies? And he still makes Shechianu in Yerusha. So I think the Pashup Shat is that it could be Mishmar Chaim, says it's also a Shimer, um, that when it's when a person gets Yerusha, it's two separate things. There's a Tzar that his father died. And as a result of that, he he comes into a windfall. He comes into a Yerusha. That's a monetary, um, not really a side effect of the Misa. It's just now that his father died. So now there's a, there's a din of what to do with the money. Hashem came by the mitzvah of Mila, even if we'll say that I'll keep shaft, there's no, the, the mitzvah is not to inflict pain per se. It could be I'll keep There is such a thing, but I'll keep There's no mitzvah to inflict pain, but because it's inseparable, the mitzvah is to do a brismila, and brismila includes pain. So on such a mitzvah, we don't make a bracha. Could be, we could say, maybe with a little bit of a twist, that there's a chalatina birchta mitzvah, the shechianu on a mitzvah, and a shechianu on a simcha of a hanoah shabola aladim. Whereas by a hanoah shabola aladim, even if there might be some element of pain or tar involved, as long as over, as long as there is a hanoah here, could be he would rather his father still be alive, but there, oh, there is a hanoah, so you can't mitigate. The hanoah is not mitigated by the tar, and therefore he makes a brach on the hanoah. Mashenki by a mitzvah. You don't make a shechion on a mitzvah that includes somebody else's things. A certain sensitivity by birth and mitzvahs. Um, there are similar differences. When Marshall, the Sefer Michtam brings down, I think, from the Ashlam, that you don't make a bracha of shechionu on creating a shaifer because it's, 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 a, it's a little bit of a tsar. It creates a pacha by him when he remembers the shaifer and he remembers the, the Amos Adin. But if other, nobody denies that we make a shechion on the, on the mitzvah of shaifer because, again, when it comes to mitzvahs, it has to do with the simcha of the mitzvah. And in the mitzvah, there's no pachad. Mashenkin, by the hano of having a shaifer, at the same, it's, it's not a hano to have a shaifer, there's it's an element of pachad included. As far as the other shaila about uh, Avimelech versus Paray um, and their respective Einshim, Really, the Shaila is a little bit the other way. Why was it that Tara got Negoim without even any kind of Hasra or any kind of Tara? Rather, we learn out that you don't need Hasra from Avimelech, but um, Avimelech was at least, it was Otzer Asa Ba'at Korechim, but Lamaisa, he was um, given some kind of Azhara that he's going to die if he doesn't um, give her back. 
Mashiach came paroid. We don't find the Rebbeinu coming to him and telling him anything, just giving him the Goyim Gedolim. So the Mefarshim over there, the Chizkuni, I think, the Ebenezer, Tzfarno, they also said the Josh the Ram deals with it somewhere. Um, they all they all give Tirutzim for that. And Kamukaime, but whatever the ter- whatever the reason is why Paroy got in the Goyim right away, um, we have a clown that Kol Chayve Misa is Kibben Shalaka is Nifter from his Din Misa, and that, even though that's talking about Dine Misa, Dine Adam, but that's clearly what we're talking about up here. We're not talking about Dine Shemaim. We're talking about the Chiv of of Eish uh, and Gezel is a Dine Adam that is Chayv Misa, and Avimelech who didn't get Negoim Gedolim, he did get some kind of Yisurim, but he didn't get Negoim Gedolim, so he doesn't have that Din of Kibben Shalaka Nifter. So Mele he would still get his his um, rightful din of Misa, whereas Pari got off the hook, so to speak, from Misa because he was locker. There might be a little element of Misa of a Simulbana mixed in over here also, whereas um, many years later, Pari and the Mitzrayim really were not a Misa for what they did, but it was pushed off for a while because they were getting um, the Makas, um, whereas when Kleiser went into Eretz Yisrael, among the Plishtim, they did live their Yom Rabbim similar to by Avram, and there was not there was there was not a lot of misnav. Although there was one episode with the Chayyim Afoilim, whatever it was over there, which is similar to the Atzeras about Korachim, but basically it was either Muhammad which led to misnav or nothing at all. Um, just an additional point on that on this idea, if we're right about the idea of of. Uh, Kibben Shalaka Nifter Midin Misa, that might also explain what looks like a Machlegus in Rashi and the Targum Unklus in Parshas Vayera by the by Sidon, where the Pasuk says the Rebbe Shalom is going to go check out um, the story in Sidon to see if they're doing if they're holding by doing tshuva as they explain, and the right it says. Uh, then I'll destroy them. So Rashi explains that I'm not going to, if they're doing tshuva, then I won't destroy them in Gantan, I'll give them Yisurim. And the Targum says, if they do tshuva, then I won't punish them. Sounds like he's saying he won't punish them at all. So it could be that it's this idea. I'll punish them with Yisurim, really the Chayv Misa for what they're doing. The Averis of Arayas, Gezel, whatever Averis time was guilty of, they would be really of Misa. But Yisurim could sort of forestall that. In other words, I'm not going to come with, with to kill them, the Dine Adam, if I could push it off, if I could forestall it, I'll the Yisurim of, of the, if I could forestall the Yisurim, then it would be a Din of Kivan Shalaka. Um, and the Targum is just saying that they won't get the Misa that they're supposed to get. Rather, like Rashi says, they'll get the Yisurim. Agav and Tzlem says, Ramech Tama Hashem Eloid, and they were Yedeim, Yedeim Ume Makirim Ezbarim Mitzchav and Limrid Boy. So that would be a Chiv of Chil Hashem, or even Yisurim is not Mimarek, only it would, have to, uh, it would have to be with Misa, but from Deathbagen. So the tshuva might not help in Gansen, but it would first, it would forestall the punishment in an oifin of Kibben Shalaka. Um, so he's nifter from Misa. Hi, it's Moshe Cohen. I would like to say my answer for this week's riddle. On the great mind this question, I have two thoughts. One is that 
in the case where a person injures something, so he had a tsar and he also had a a uh, something to make a shachion about, something to be happy about. So the tsar that he has is other than he has. He has to thank Hashem for what he had good. It was the tsar that he had is mitigated by the fact that he had a something good. Mashen came by a bris. The kid doesn't have anything good. He, to him, there's no shachiyano. He's only star. It's a physical, a physical star. He's not a ba'ach. He's like a shachiyano there. And in, in a similar way, the shachiyano that he has, the star that he has, brought him a tayana. So the tayyib is the having it last, but it's a tayyib. So he has to make the shachiyano on the tayyib. Whereas by the kid, the side that he has didn't bring him any tayana, and he's not from his point of view mean a while. So um, the father can't make a shachianu because he had a, uh, he was in the mitzvah. This mitzvah has a side which wasn't, uh, it's going to bring to anything. So he doesn't make a shachianu on that. On the question of between Tari and Avimelech, I think both of them would have been the Khuyid Mitzvah if they would have been born on Sarah or on Rivka. The question is, what are they Mechuyid right now? I doubt the Mechuyid Mechuyid. By Tarai, by Avimelech, Hashem came to him in a Chalayim. He was on a higher Madrid. Hashem came to him in a Chalayim and told him that you will be Mechuyid Mitzvah if you don't uh, give her back. By power, he wasn't on that Madrigo. He right now got Nagoyim. So, um, but they really were both Mokhoyim, if they would have kept it. Right now, the, both of them both of them needed a warning. Eventually, they would both be Mokhoyim, if they wouldn't give him back. Hi, this is Moshe Aaron Cohen again. I just wanted to say another parrot to the a guy's mind is question. Tesis phrases is when were Hazal Mustakin a Shachiyano, when were they not Mustakin a Shachiyano? He's looking for a cloud. So by a bris, there's always Sarah Yanuka. By somebody who's kind of Kino Hadashim, that is something to make a simcha about. It happens to be that this particular individual happened, his father died, and that's why he got the Kino Hadashim. So we don't reckon with that. The problem with the fact that the Kelo is usually it is a thing, even though in this case there is some type of contradiction. Whereas at risk, where there's always a contradiction, they were in the fact in the book. Hi, it's Mishy Cohn. I'd like to advise my answer. The Agrees Maimini, I mean, Agrees Maimini gives you two things. The Tatrist, which is quoting, that it's Tara de Yanuka was still good and not to say not to say Shachiyano and yes that um, we do find that a person says Shachiyano even when he uh, is there with something it's obviously Yanushasai so the point is that we say Shachiyano when we have a a Simcha which comes out of a star even though there's a star involved so you have to, have to recognize the tape even though there is lying. But that's only when there's a relationship between the tape and the rat. 
the ra resulted in tay. But if the ra is not related to the tay, like over here by a bris, where the child only has ra and the father only has tay, there is no bracha. The ra and the tay just conflict. The ra does not turn to the tay. That's uh, what I would suggest for the first question. For the question about the fear between Tyre and Abimelech, there are two, two different answers. One of them is that by Tyre, they took Tyre to Tyre. Tyre did not take Tyre. So Tyre didn't really, there was a negative because Tyre was in Tyre's house, and Tyre was liable to uh, be fighting with Tyre, so the British time brought the grain to protect Tyre. So you can't say Tyre is liable. Whereas in the second case, Avimelech sent, says in the prophet, the court to take Tara. So Avimelech took Tara and took a risk that he wasn't any person who was also to him. That risk was not, um, he lost that risk. He changed it and it turned out she was also to him. So he is li- liable for anything which is involved, which is why he's Chayv Nisa. Tara was not Chayv Nisa and Avimelech was just Chayv Nisa. That is my first answer. My second answer was that Abimelech happened many years later. There was an ability for him to find out if Sarah was Aram's wife or not. People knew. Tyre was when Aram was still unknown. He wasn't anything. So there wasn't any chance of him finding out. There was no pain in him that he should have been the virus. Hello, this is Yisrael Kramer. I would like to answer the two riddles from this past week in terms of the chalik between why we hold you do say Shachianu by a Yerusha while we don't say Shachianu by a Bris, I think there's a major difference between the two. By uh, Yerusha, the sad thing happened is two separate, two separate things. There's a sad thing that happened, the person died, and then there's a separate thing that it brought about, but it's a separate thing of Yerusha. By the Bris Mila, it's one, it's one thing. So it's in the Mesa of the mitzvah, you're causing the pain. It's one thing. You can't make a shachim on that. In terms of the second, uh, yeah, in terms of the second question about um, why Tara was not the uh, of uh, Misa, first of all, I think it's brought down that he didn't actually sleep with her. Yeah, he wasn't with her. And in terms of kidnapping, it wasn't been it wasn't been kidnapping, so it would only be out being ball. Second of all, so in a way it could be that the Nagayim was uh, that he was a Mitzvah and therefore it was Chash Kameh, so it was Kain he got Misa. Um, 